Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January 17, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. Morning, Royal. Excuse me. Good morning, Freehold. <laughs> Good morning. The Royal Freehold. Well, I, mean, I, I, like I got it. my notes I like here. It. I'm stacking. I, I got a lot of different kinds of stories this morning. First of all, um, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch an NFL game when you don't pull for either team. That's the best kind to watch. I mean, it really and truly is. Um, I don't like the Buccaneers. I don't like the Cowboys. I don't like the Cowboys because I grew up a Redskins fan. Remember the early days before the Panthers, the Redskins were our television market team. Um, so you become a Redskins fan. Um, you don't know that freehold, but see for a long time, the South didn't have a professional, well, let me have the Atlanta Falcons. But uh, but there was not a um. And you keep saying Redskins, you know, politically well, you're, you're supposed around, to forget, say uh, what, what are they now? I forget. I don't even know that. What are they called? Washington Manders. The Mighty Commodores. Uh, <laughs> the Commodores. <laughs> right? Yeah. Lionel Richie at quarterback <laughs> once, <laughs> once, twice. They got that running back like a brick three house man. You know what I mean? Three that, times yeah. a touchdown. Yeah, there you go. And that running back like a brick house and <laughs> good, uh, good. yeah, I like it. You know. <laughs> the easy like Sunday morning. Oh, and, there, you go. Yeah, there you go. There easy you go. like Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but no, you when you were a kid in this area, years and years pre Panther era, it was the Redskins. It was uh, Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer, and it was the um, it was the Cowboys and Roger Stallback and Drew Pearson, um, and it was a big rivalry. The Redskins and Cowboys was as big a rivalry as there was in the National Football League, and for some reason. Uh, I became a Redskins fan because they were uh, kind of the kind of the uh, uh, the the in market team, so to speak. And um, and I've never changed my opinion about the Cowboys. And um, I mean, I've accepted that they are the New York Yankees of the NFL. I mean, they really and truly are. They're big old, big old brand. Um, Jerry Jones is a big old, big old personality. Um, you know, Jerry Jones is one of the most interesting people in sports today, and has been for a long time. Jerry Jones could buy anything he wants. Frio, you're an NFL guy. Jerry Jones could buy anything he wants. He could do anything he wants, go anywhere he wants. But he can't buy football respect. He can't buy football credibility. And it just irks him to no end. <laughs> the guy that has enough money to buy anything he wants in this world cannot buy football acumen. He cannot get past the fact that, I mean, he did win that Super Bowl with Barry Switzer, but that was still the leftover Jimmy Johnson regime and he and Johnson had this dust up that they've never been able to. I mean, it's alpha male, alpha male is what it is. And Jerry Jones has never been able to get past the fact that I didn't really win those Super Bowls. That was Jimmy Johnson who gets all the credibility for putting a team together, knowing exactly what he was doing. I mean, when you look back at that team the Cowboys had, it was all about Herschel Walker, the Herschel Walker trade. They traded Walker to the Vikings for 374 draft choices. And out of that 374, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. I mean, it was a stupid trade uh, for the Cowboys or for the Vikings, really. And um, the the Cowboys shipped Herschel Walker to Minnesota and got like, I mean, I, you know, I mean, the, the six draft choices that ended up four All Pros, two Hall of Famers. I mean, it was an absurd trade. But Jerry Jones didn't do that. That was Jimmy Johnson when he was not only head coach but director of player personnel. And Jerry Jones has never been able to get his ego is what his ego is. You would expect a um a oil wildcatting billionaire to have that sort of an ego, but he's never been able to convince the league that he knows how to run a winning organization. I mean, he knows how to market. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He knows how to spend big money because he has big money, and he's got one of the um 
you know, one of the storied franchises in all of major league sports, whether it's football, basketball, or baseball, that would be kind of an interesting story or a question. I mean, I'm a college football guy, college basketball guy, college baseball guy. What is the biggest brand in all of sports? Is it the Cowboys or Yankees? Hmm. I mean, is that the biggest brand? Um, is it the, um, what's the biggest brand of the NBA? Is it the Celtics or Lakers? I mean, would it be one or the other? I mean, Freehold's shaking his head. He's the, he's the, um, he's the big market guy in this studio. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I grew up with the Celtics and Lakers, but, but I would imagine LeBron went to the Lakers yeah. and I mean, the Celtics have won championships since Bird, since Bird left. In baseball, it would be the Yankees and Red Sox, Cubs. Would be a kind of a big brand, am I right? Yeah. Uh, so, I yeah can't Dodgers, argue. the Dodgers would be a big brand. It, it kind of, um, it's pretty easy to understand. You know what it is? Where are the big markets? I mean, where are the biggest where, where markets? Where the people are? I mean, the Braves have a brand. I mean, the Braves, uh, you know, Ted turned to America's team and the, the the Superstation and all that. But, but it's not the Yankees. No, 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 no. Um, and the um, I mean, the Packers have a big brand. They're kind of a yeah. national brand. Um, what is the biggest brand in all of Major League Sports? Let's say in baseball, it's the 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 Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Dodgers. Is that fair? Okay, Friol's agreeing. Those yeah, three I can't in baseball. Argue that. In in football, it would be the Cowboys. Cowboys. Is it the Packers? The Cowboys, the Packers, and who else? Friol, help me here now. What would, uh, what Cowboys, would, Packers, uh, maybe the Giants. Okay, maybe the Giants, maybe the Bears. I almost yeah, say Bears. Bears. Maybe Bears. the Bears. Yes. Yeah, the Chicago yes. Bears would be another um, team, and and then in the NBA, it would be the Lakers, Celtics, Celtics. and who? Uh, you know, Bulls. Bulls. Every, okay, the Bulls. It. Okay, Michael Jordan, Chicago. Yeah. But I mean, there you go. It's all these big markets, and Rev's always talking about the market size of this. You know, this market and then and the beach market and the Greenville market. What's the biggest radio market in South Carolina, Rib? Uh, Greenville Spartanburg. Okay. What would be the, the second market? biggest? Probably eh, might be Charleston now. Okay. Columbia. Okay. Columbia, okay. Charleston. Kind of interesting. Um, for a long time, the beach and the PD were one market. Are they still? I mean, is this still the, um, I mean, the television market would be different than the radio market. Yeah. And what's called the TV DMA, Myrtle Beach, Florence are combined. As you know, the, the broadcast television stations cover both markets. They identify as Florence Myrtle Beach, but the radio signals are different uh, because of the separation and the signals. And so Myrtle Beach and Florence are actually separate radio markets. Good deal. So um, so what is the biggest name in all the sports, and all the professional sports? If we've, um, the big three sports, we've got the Dodgers, the Cubs, excuse me, the Dodgers, the Red Sox and the Yankees, the Packers, the Bears, and the Cowboys. The Bulls, Celtics, and Lakers. It'd be kind of interesting to rate those or mm -hmm. list those. I mean, there's no if, right if you, answer. If you intermix the sports, yeah. top, you know, probably say, I'd say Yankees. Despite America being a football country today? Yeah. yeah. Okay. See, I think it's the Cowboys. Of course, you'd say that. But, I mean, the Cowboys don't win yeah. enough. But I'm a football guy. That's right. what you're trying to imply. Yeah. And, of course, you'd say that. You're yeah. a football guy. I yeah. get it. But we're a football nation. Wouldn't you agree to that? Pretty much. Okay. I mean, you know, I can't argue with at that. At one time, we were a baseball I mean, nation. Um, um, I mean, baseball, baseball apple is still pie, America's uh, pastime. Well, it was. Right. I don't know that it is now. We still refer to it. Well, I mean, you've read I'm this. I'm nostalgic, okay? Well, I mean, I, mean, I get that, but but you don't get your way all the time. Um, <laughs> Never. You greedy son of a gun. Um, <laughs> Not on but, this show. No, but, but in all honesty, you and I have looked at some of the data. A, a, a regular season football game between... Um, the Packers and Cowboys will outrate Game 7 of the World Series. You're right. 
by a pretty wide margin. Yep. And I'm not talking about a Super Bowl. I mean, that that's on another planet. Yeah. A Super Bowl is up there with American Idol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, tells you yeah, that tells you something right there. Um, the Super Bowl and American Idol are, um, are kind of the, um, I don't know, the high water marks for, for rated television. There, there's a couple of stories out there that, that I find interesting. Um, we'll get to Biden the email. Excuse me. We'll get to Biden and um and the uh you know the fact that it doesn't keep logs as as his pride. Andy McCarthy said I'm not buying this. I mean Andy McCarthy said you know the the private residence is the private residence, but the Secret Service has to have a log somewhere of the people who frequented you know the the, the current president's private residence. And if Guys, they say there's not, then what are they hiding? Well, I mean, but but here's the story, Reb, and let's let it play itself out. I mean, we've got control of the House. We know there'll be some investigative efforts in regards to, you know, what we know, what we don't know, who could tell us some things that we don't know. The one smoking gun to me is still the fact that Hunter Biden, because we've always said, now Chuck Todd says there's no um, crime against trafficking in your last name. In other words, if you happen to be fortunate enough to have the last name or be the sibling of a uh, of a prominent American politician, it ain't your fault. If a Chinese energy company decides to pay you fifty grand a month, and you know a Ukrainian energy company decides to um, give you an interest free loan for eight million dollars, I mean none of that is really is really your fault. But we substantiated a couple of factoids that that you know even the Biden administration are not um, arguing against. One is um, there were. Classified documents at a private residence owned by President Biden. Uh, the documents I read yesterday have been there somewhere in the neighborhood of six years. Now, now you know, how they got there, who's responsible for getting them there, um, why were lawyers involved in, you know, um, scouring the private residence. We don't have answers there. And I want to be real careful to go too far down that road. Let's talk about what we do know. We do know, once again, that Biden has a private residence in Delaware, a couple of million dollars. Um, in that location, there were classified documents. Um, Hunter Biden declared that his residence on a um, on an application, and um, if he owns the home and he's paying his father fifty grand a month in rent, then something is amiss there. Something's out of sorts there. Now, once again, I don't know how the Bidens keep record. I actually made two words. But, but that's that information was on a form that Hunter Biden Correct. used for something. Correct. As official information. Well, I mean, either he um, he filled out. He was well, applying I mean, for something. Uh, and it said, uh, What's it's, your... But it's not bank fraud because it's not he wasn't borrowing money. I mean, it's um, it's it's more or less um, the, 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 the clerical work necessary to consummate a, a real estate deal. But it's not a loan document. But, but here's where I think we're headed. You ready? Joe Biden has been never revered. Biden's never been a revered American politician. He's always been um, a little bit of a nitwit. I mean, he really and truly, I mean, when you go back to Britt Hume 20 years ago, when Biden said, Britt, when you do these news stories, you never include any of my quotes. And, and Britt Hume said, Joe, you never said anything interesting. I mean, everything you say is regurgitated by somebody from, uh, you know, your committee or your subcommittee. So nobody's ever believed that Joe Biden is a visionary American politician. But he's kind of been the guy that's always there. You know, if you want to get something done, go see Joe. Joe can get along with Democrats. Joe can get along with Republicans. As Joe has aged, um, we're getting to find out some revelations about Biden that we didn't know. In other words, 
um, for many, many years before Biden became a vice president, when I thought I kind of bought into the narrative, he rides the subway, he rides the, the Amtrak, he, um, he's amongst the commoners, he's lunch pail Joe. Okay, he's not very smart. He barely graduated from law school, but he's one of us. You know, he eulogized Strom Thurmond when, when, when uh, Senator Thurmond died in South Carolina. Joe Biden came down, did a, a very eloquent job in, um, in eulogizing a, um, a pragmatic senator. So, so I've always had this, um, this belief about Biden that he's somewhat harmless. He was somewhat pragmatic, and he was kind of a throwback to an era of the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan. Uh, this would be, I think he predates the Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton era. Oh, yeah. I mean, he would go back to the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan era is when he became somewhat of a prominent politician, and he's been a bit harmless. I mean, he really and truly has been a bit harmless. He's not been, once again, one of the uh, visionary leaders of our legislative body, um, except on gun legislation and some of the crime bill. That's kind of interesting. The only thing that Biden really has his fingerprints on that amounts to much of anything is um, kind, of, kind of being in lockstep with where the Republicans are today on crime and um and and, and some of the welfare reform. I mean, he's so so... so I guess that's why I'm saying he's never, he's a bit of a bit harmless to me because I've never perceived him to be an uber liberal guy. I mean, I don't think he's ever been an uber liberal guy. I mean, I think he's a Northeast liberal. I think he's far more sympathetic to government than I am, but he's not one of these LGBTQ. I mean, you watched him struggle with some of that early in the uh, presidential campaign when they asked how many, uh, how many genders there are. And he said, uh, at least three, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the answer that somebody like Joe would probably give. In other words, what do you mean? I mean, as a man and a woman, dude, I mean, but, um, but because he's historically been for, you know, traditional marriage, um, putting people who break the law in jail, but, but then this, this, uh, liberal wave began to take over and he does what, who did what every, uh, politician in America does. He kind of rode the wave to wherever the wave carries him. But, but I put two things down, um, who does Joe Biden remind me of today in, in culture? I'm outside of politics. And I put Joe Paterno down to begin with. But, but Joe was never as revered as Paterno. Um, and I don't know that Paterno was a criminal. You know, I think Paterno was an old guy who didn't believe those sorts of things could happen in his locker room. And he probably did turn a blind eye to Jerry Sandusky and some of the things that happened. And his legacy is forever tarnished as a result of that. Statues have been taken down of Joe Pa in College Station. But um, but when I look at Biden today, I see Bernie Madoff. I mean, I, okay. I just see, I just see a, a crook. And I think we're beginning to find out things now that Joe was a pragmatist. Joe was a um, uh, somewhat of a political lightweight. Joe was somewhat of a nitwit. Nobody really took Joe that seriously, but, but he could bring home some votes. He could work with Reagan. He could work with Tip O'Neill. He could work with um, what I'd call the establishment-oriented Republican and Democrat Party. But but all of a sudden, you know, you're beginning to find revelations. And here's the deal: the the Senate in the senator in Delaware is not going to get nationally vetted. The senator in Wyoming is not going to get nationally vetted. The senator from South Carolina is not going to get nationally vetted. I mean, there'll be local vetting, and there'll be stories about what they may or may not have done. Uh, every state has those kind of the local media effect. But all of a sudden, you become vice president, and, and there's a national vetting that goes on. There, there's a deeper dive into what you did, why you did it, um, what was the motivation for this bill or that bill or another bill. 
And I think we're beginning to find out now with Joe Biden, this has always been about, you know, getting the family wealthy. But this has always been about money. And I think you're going to find sooner or later, if we have a thorough investigation, and I think we will now that Republicans are in control of the subcommittees, I think you're going to find that Joe Biden is completely and totally corrupt. I think he's always been completely and totally corrupt. Nobody just cared much about it when he was a senator from Delaware who appeared to be willing to play ball, you know, with Republicans and Democrats for that matter. He would have been a throwback to the way we've, you know, previously conducted American politics. But but today, some of these revelations, I think, are really shining a bright light on just how crooked Joe Biden is. Bernie Madoff was chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, Madoff was, I read one day that um, Madoff was responsible, go home to this number, for 7% of all the trades executed on an, on an average day. It's either NASDAQ or the, uh, or the Dow Jones. I mean, he was responsible for about, I mean, he was, he was it. You know, he would have been, um, I mean, he would have been the president or vice president, as that goes. And we find out everything was a fraud. Nothing was real. And I think we're going to get to a place in Joe Biden's life where we find nothing is really as it has ever seemed. Everything has been phony. Everything has been a fraud. Everything has been about trafficking in American government, um, monetizing his um, influence in American government. Um, Because nitwits, if they hang around long enough, can figure out how things work, right? And I think when we begin, you know, this document here, that document there, you know, $50,000 in anonymous Chinese funding to a Penn Biden Center on global engagement. I mean, I know that's not the official name, but that's basically, um, you know, globalism 101. Um, how can the American government help you, whomever you may be? And I think um, when you start seeing the revelations of $50,000 lease payments on a $2 million home, I mean, that's a pretty good case of arbitrage there. You know, <laughs> when you really start thinking about, wow, okay, $2 million home, I'm paying fifty grand a month. That's $600,000 a year. I mean, in three years, I bought the joint. Mm-hmm. You know, when you really start thinking about it, and it's just absurd make sense. to think, well, there you go. No I mean, you nailed sense it. You nailed it there. I mean, when things, when things get that out of sorts, you, you know something's up. And, and once again, guys, if he were making a deal, I mean, if he ran a big company, and he, and he made a deal with his kid, and, and they were sheltering money or laundering money or, you know, however they want to do it. That, that's the story. But when you become president of the United States or vice president of the United States, I mean, you're basically trafficking in, you know, a company you don't own. You're, you're a representative of. I thought about this yesterday, and then somebody, I guess, thought about it, too, and posted uh, the information. They said they went and looked at Joe Biden's tax returns, which he's released and to see what he claimed as rental income during this time. And over that three-year period, his rental income, I think, was $18,000 one year and zero the other two years. But there's a the place of which Biden, because remember when everybody complained about Trump not making his tax returns public? Biden made his public, but there's a there's a site you can go and um, and you can download Biden's tax returns, but not now. I think the site has been scrubbed. Now, now, I've not gone to the mm-hmm. site, but, but I looked on Twitter last night. I'll take Twitter for what it's worth. But I looked on Twitter last night. A couple of folks I follow with well, the national scene say they've tried to revisit the site of which Biden's tax records were made public, and they've been scrubbed. Some of the information is not available today. I just think Biden's made off. 
I mean, I think everything's a fraud. I, I don't bad. think any, I mean, oh, that, that's as bad as it gets. I don't think anything is as it appears. And I think they have done um, the, 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 the American government a great disservice by trafficking in, you know, what, whatever it is. And, I, and look, I think Biden got a taste of being wealthy. And I think he liked it. And he found out a way to get his son wealthier, keep his son above water, get his brother wealthy. I mean, I just think, you know, once again, watch some documentaries about Madoff. Nothing is at is is that is is at ah is as it appeared, and I think that's the same. Um, ah, that's the road we're traveling with Joe Biden. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, I I just uh per, just pleasantly per, um pleased that the perceptive and persistent Prince of Pamplico has uh, come up with a point that uh, Biden is a crook, always has been a crook. Everything about him is a lie. And I I just want to put it out there that if you believe there's not a log to everyone that's approached that property in the last 12 years, uh, you're uh, severely deluded because if you don't uh if you don't think that we have records or the secret service doesn't have records check with the chinese i'm pretty sure they're keeping up with who goes in and out so that's just a a matter of fact and i don't see how you can avoid that in uh, today's world thank you mike appreciate that 843-661-0937 and once again I mean, I think the majority of people who follow politics have always felt Biden doesn't bring a lot of intellect to the table, but he's kind of a good old boy. You know, he's one of these guys that um, you can count on Joe to help you with gun reform. You can count on Joe to help you with crime reform. You can count on Joe to go see Reagan and represent some of the um, some of the blue dog Democrat interest. And and I think, you know, for, for a long time, that was a guy's. And and I, I've always, well, I mean, I, I'm not always, but I've recently felt that he flew under the radar, not flew under the radar. That's unfair because he was a prominent senator, but he was not a thought leader. I mean, he was not the guy that think tanks invited. You know, when you invited Joe Biden to appear to function, you invited him there because he'd been around a long time and he chaired a committee or he knew the chairman of the committee and he had some favors in his pocket and he has some favors expended. And, um, and out of that came this, you know, the, the, the transactional nature of American politics. But that's kind of what we thought about Bernie saying. I mean, excuse me, that's Bernie Madoff. I mean, we kind of thought Madoff was one of these, um, you know, gurus. I mean, he knew how to work the system. Madoff knew better than anybody how to invest your money. And we find out he wasn't investing in anything. He was a complete and total fraud. And I just think we're going to get to a point sooner than later where we find Joe Biden is a complete and total fraud. And he's a crook. You know, I got a buddy of mine, nearly called his name, got a buddy of mine I was talking with yesterday, and he said, you know, Trump's the kind of crook we understand. You know, I mean, I'm not, he said that somewhat, I mean, not pleasantries, but, but you know, Trump's lived in that world. I mean, Trump's the, the, the rough and tumble, the quintessential rough and tumble business guy who kind of operates in that world. He gets dinged by the IRS about every year. He's probably got a lawyer working on six or seven or eight cases simultaneously. I mean, that doesn't surprise anybody. I mean, Trump's probably been in court a hundred times, uh, probably a thousand times. He probably has a hundred lawyers handling a thousand cases. But but it's the kind of corruption that you and I would understand. 
did Trump pay the city council to buy that adjacent piece of property so he could do what he wanted to do with that? And I think everybody kind of expects a certain degree of that out of people like Trump and their engagement or interaction with government. But I think Biden's going to prove to be just an absolute political crook, 100%. It's always been about, you know, peddling influence. Um, uh, is his kid, what What did he know about his kid? He knew everything about his kid. I mean, Joe Biden's the, I mean, the business model for Hunter Biden to make a buck is Joe Biden to stay in politics. I mean, what other, what other um, quality does Hunter Biden bring to the table? The only, the only quality Hunter Biden brings to the table is being the kid of a prominent politician. You don't think Joe Biden knows that? I mean, when Joe Biden honestly, um, you know, assess his kid and he says, you know, Hunter's smart. He's done real well in the business world. Um, I'm surprised they hadn't elevated him to CEO yet or CFO or, or COO, you know, or, or a partner in a law firm. I mean, Joe knows what he's dealing with. I mean, despite being somewhat of a nitwit, I mean, he knows his kid is kind of a, um, a, a person adrift, and he knows the only the only criteria that keeps Hunter Biden in the loop is for him to remain a prominent American politician. And I think once Biden kind of became stained by that or committed to that, he kind of had to make a decision to be all in. And I think it's the Biden crime family. I mean, I really and truly believe that. And I think evidence will present itself as we progress. I told Rev during the break, the one problem with this story that there, there's a little bit of smoke over here and a little bit of smoke over there. We've got to find some coalescing of the energy. You know, what, what is the, um, I still believe the smoking gun is Hunter Biden had access to a property, uh, says he owned a property that he paid rent to his father. Uh, see, see where I'm headed, Rev? Mm-hmm. There, there's so many things that it's almost like, um, remember the Saturday Night Live skit? I'm in the Liars Club. I'm president of the Liars yeah, Club. Yeah, that's the that's ticket. The ticket. I'm president of the Liars Club. It's almost like he can't help himself. So, so now we're finding out. Um, what do you mean, Hunter Biden had access to a home that Joe Biden was found to have, um, you know, classified material? Yeah, he did. Um, what if, um, what if Hunter put on a um, some sort of um, official report that he owned the home? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Wonder if he'd do that. I think he might. Um, hey, what if we could add? It's almost like Hollywood producers get together and try to create a storyline, and you wonder how far is too far. <laughs> and here's when somebody sits around the table in Hollywood and says, "Hey, let's do this. Let's include as part of the storyline the guy that owns the home or says he owns the home of a prominent politician. Let's say that he pays the guy that really owns the home fifty grand a month in in uh, in rent." Yeah. Yeah. And how does he get that money that he pays the other guy with? Let's, let's, um, hey, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's make the father a prominent American politician. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's make the father a prominent American politician. The kid's somewhat of a, um, you know, just a guy gone bad. And let's, um, let's take the kid who's somewhat of a, um, you know, I don't want to say a miserable failure. That's unfair. Let, let's say, hey, the kid that has had these struggles is the, is the kid of a prominent politician, and let's do this. Let's get a foreign company, a Chinese company. Yeah, that's the ticket. Let's get a <laughs> Chinese company to offer him 50 grand a month to sit on a board, a board that he has no experience in relation to. Yeah, let's do that. 
hey, and let's do this too, Rev. Let's do this while we're drawing up the storyline. Let's um, let's draw up some documentation where the kid pays his father fifty grand a month to live in the house that he says he owns. That also includes a classic Corvette and some top secret, you know, government classified documents. Yeah, let's do that. And somebody in the room would probably say, "Stop with that." I mean, we can't go that extra step. I mean, you, you, I mean, it's got to be somewhat believable. I understand, and our audience understands, Superman doesn't fly. But there's got to be some parameters or guardrails here. Let's let's stop there. Um, no, let's um, let's add. Yeah, let's do this. You ready? Let's say that this guy takes a laptop computer to a repair shop, leaves it and forgets it. And on that laptop, there's all this incriminating information. And then let's introduce a guy to the storyline named Vinny Barbarino. You know what I mean? He's somewhat familiar with what you see where I'm headed, mm-hmm. but it's almost like a Hollywood script. And where, where does it end? I don't have any idea, but, but I know the recent revelations to just um, solidify or, or affirm the suspicion I had that Joe Biden is the, the, the lower IQ Bernie Madoff of American politics. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, the bad thing is this has been in plain sight for probably 30 years. You know, you see the stories, but it's a one-time hit and, and go on. When when Biden was in in charge of the committees, like when Visa, uh, there's two roads on Visa. Nancy Pelosi was given the IPO, so she took that route. You know, she buys the shares under value before it comes out. Joe's on the the committee that approves Visa. Well, six months before. That bill comes up to that committee. Joe Biden, all of a sudden, Hunter Biden's on the board of Visa, and then that just just reported on goes on down the road. Nobody thinks anything about it. Then Amtrak comes up. Well, before six months before they do whatever for Amtrak, all of a sudden Hunter Biden's on the board of Amtrak, and this has been going on forever. The the Clinton started this actually back in the the nineties. Because they they wanted money, but they don't know how to generate money. They're the only people I know that start a foundation after they get out of office and make more money. But this the thing that people are missing on these top secret documents. I I spent twenty six years in the military. I've got a top secret clearance, or I had one. I mean, the highest level. Every top secret document that is generated has a date and time stamp on it from the moment it's generated, and it goes through the Office of Accountability. Every time it's passed off, it's signed for, and they know where it's at. It was never a big deal until Trump, because these are Obama's. Remember, the National Archives got in a big argument with Trump he said, Trump said Obama had 30 million documents. Well, they had to respond to him uh, publicly and say, no, all of Obama's documents are in a, a neighborhood facility, which is a National Archives facility in Chicago, and they're under complete control. Well, that was a lie because Joe Biden had Obama documents. 
in his house. So they lied about that. They only made documents important when Trump did it. And I think that came from the January 6th committee because they couldn't find nothing else. You know, they harped on his taxes forever because he was a crook. Well, there's nothing wrong with his taxes other than, you know, the normal loopholes. They just spent $15 million prosecuting the Trump organization and finding $1.6 million. How much sense does that make? None. But all of these documents, there's no way they can keep up with all of them, but they knew those top secret documents weren't back, weren't in the possession, because they didn't care. And Biden had them probably to write his memoirs with. But until the Republicans got in and said they were going to go after the National Archives, the day after that was said, all of a sudden, Biden's lawyers are the ones that found it. And then they said, well, the investigation's over. Well, the investigation's over, but they found 12 more documents since the investigation was over. So this is this is all so corrupt. It's unreal. Our government is peeing in our face, telling us it's raining, and it's lemonade. You should drink it. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, you know, it, the, the investigation is just beginning as far as I'm concerned because Representative uh, Comer, a Republican from Kentucky, I think it's here, Kentucky, I think it's Kentucky, um, chair of the House Oversight and uh, what the, uh, the Accountability Committee, um, he's going to ask that they release the visitor logs. He's asking Secret Service to release the visitor logs of um, who may or may not have visited the Delaware home. Take a break back in just a few. You know, I don't want to do a four-hour radio show on things we don't know. I mean, we're speculating about, I mean, there are nuggets that we know that could potentially lead to bombshells that we don't know. But but I think this, the, the best way to treat this story is to allow it to play out. And I thought about it this morning. How can you talk about these issues for four hours? You can't. Not and have an honest, interesting conversation. But there are about four or five things that we know to be true today that I think will eventually culminate in a big, big scandal. But it will have to eventually play itself out. Um, some of these investigative committees will be a part of it. Um, I doubt very seriously the media helps very much, you know, fan the flames of this story. But at some point in time, the, the, these dots will begin being connected, not by the media, because they just won't do it. I actually looked at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and uh, Washington Post during the break, and it's very minor mention of that. It's all about China GDP and, you know, um, sequestration and government spending and whatnot. And I get that. But the media will be very reluctant to go down this road, to go down this rabbit hole to connect these dots. But there's about four or five interesting bullet points out there that eventually I think will converge into a major American political scandal. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. You know, I held on a little while yesterday, and I had to hang up and go into a meeting at Sumter, so I didn't get to say what I had on my mind yesterday. But I, I think we are missing one minor point. Hunter Biden, based on my understanding, was not paying $49,910 a month to rent that house. He was paying $49,910 a month for a bedroom in that house where Joe and Jill lived. And uh, that's all he was getting out of it. Um, You're 100% correct. I can remember 
And a lot of people say, well, you're not that old, you can't remember. But I've been part of politics all my life. I remember 50 years ago this month when a 30-year-old guy from Delaware with a young family was sworn into the Senate. And I remember saying to myself, you know, that guy's 30 years old, he's already there, he's, he's going places. Of course, I didn't realize at the time he can't read the truth out of the Bible. But uh, but I thought that at that time, and he has gone places, and I think you're 100% correct. He is the Bernie Madoff of U.S. politics. And Joe mentioned those documents. I think it was Joe. Those documents were at his home to assist him in writing his memoir. Raise your hand if you think he wrote his own memoir. I mean, let's face it, he doesn't know what day it is. They were there for his ghostwriter to write that memoir. Because I promise you, Joe hadn't written any of it. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you uh, this morning. I said last week that, I mean, I'm speculating, as Charles is, as we all are now. We don't know what we don't know, but um, but we have a right to kind of connect dots or put two and two together as we as we see fit. And yes, uh, excuse me, last week, middle of the week, we kind of discussed, is this a big nothing burger or not? I mean, the, her investigation probably is. I mean, the appointment of a special counsel to um to find out whether or not um Joe Biden intentionally, you know, mishandled classified documents. I mean, that's probably the pomp and circumstance of American politics. Um, uh, you know, a liberal politician gets caught in the act and he's slapped on the wrist, and there'll be some reprimand. There'll be some official notification of, "Hey, Joe, you can't do that." I mean, you can't traffic in, you know, classified documents in your home and your, in your, uh, what is the Penn Biden Center for Global Engagement and Selling Influence to China, um, which is what it should be so, or what it should be labeled as. But, um, but, but, and I agreed, you know, I agreed last week with a couple of callers that this is probably be a nothing burger. But, but I, I said, beside that box of nothing, there's a box of something. And that box of something includes this connection to Hunter Biden. Isn't that kind of what we've always suspected, Reb? I mean, we've always, Vinnie Barbarino said that, um, you know, this is not about Hunter Biden. This is about the big guy. Uh, and we're finding out now, there, there are more revelations that lead us to believe our suspicions were founded by believing. I mean, if you believe that the Burisma or CEFC, the Chinese energy company, put Hunter Biden on those boards, paid him, you know, a, um, a monthly stop. And if you believe that was because he was an expert and invaluable to the organization, um, then uh, there's some oceanfront land in Wyoming for sale. Um, nobody believes that. But, but once again, that's conjecture. You don't know what happened. And we're beginning to find some clarity on, okay, here's how these folks roll. Uh, rem- when, when did we find out about Madoff? After the fact, in other words, when we, when the Madoff story broke, and I thought about this this morning, I'm very careful to choose that as a comparison. When the Madoff story broke, some people thought there were hundreds of millions of dollars in play. And as they investigated, they found out more and hundreds of millions became, you know, a few billion, a few billion became multiple billions. And, and the next thing you know, it is the largest, you know, white collar crime in the history of America. In the world, I mean, it's the largest white collar crime in the history of the world. I mean, I, I don't remember the totality, but it's I mean, it's up into what seventy billion, eighty billion dollars of financial fraud committed against you know people who had money invested with Bernie with Bernie Madoff. And I just believe 
that once the the leak begins, and it seems to me it's beginning now, it's going to be total exposure. And and I, you know something tells me that I'm, and I don't know this. I mean, once again, I don't know anything. The only thing we know, I mean, there are fact patterns here. We know that the Biden administration, uh, Joe Biden in particular, mishandled classified documents. We know that. What we know that they self-reported, so to speak, um, at the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania and at the Biden residence. I mean, I think there's three three different occasions. There's been a total of four breaches of security. Three at the home, one at the Biden Center. We know that now. Now, I opined last week or speculated last week, as Charles just did, that Joe Biden's just not the kind of guy to write an interesting book. I'm sorry, he's just not. He's kind of been a, um, a, a, a duncey transactional politician. I mean, no harm in that. I mean, there are a lot of duncey transactional politicians. Uh, there's a line in Charlie Wilson's war. When um, Philip Seymour, what is his name? He's a great actor. The Hoffman. Guy, Hoffman. Yeah, Hoffman. I mean, the guy that passed away. I mean, he's a phenomenal actor. He basically says, you know, that there there are two things I know about you. There's not a there's not a shred of consequential legislation that you had anything to do with, but you've got more favors in Washington than anybody. Well, I mean, Biden kind of fits that. I mean, that would have been historic. Why do you think Joe Biden came to South Carolina to eulogize Strom Thurmond? Because Thurmond was known as a deal maker. He was a he was not a, a, a an ideologue. I mean, he was somebody who would you know work together with people he agreed with and disagreed with. And Joe did that. And there was kind of a, a, a congeniality amongst those folks in in the Senate. And um and and, and you know Bernie Madoff appeared to be that guy. You know, Bernie Madoff appeared to be Uncle Bernie. I mean, just, you know, uh, from what I'm understanding, people would go to Bernie with a million dollars and Bernie would say, I, I, I don't want to take your money. I mean, it was it was a mystique. You know, um, Bernie didn't solicit contributions. Bernie denied people. In other words, it was so exclusive to be allowed to invest with Bernie Madoff. And I think we're going to find some of this aura with Joe Biden. And um, and I think it's going to be all about money. Because money's the answer. Now, what the question? What's the question? I mean, I think that's where we're going to get eventually. Well, here's the question to me. Why now? Why is this started? Well, I mean, I it, think- it seems to, I mean, it's just too cute. It's just the fact the one, the two, the three, the four, all this happens right after Republicans are sworn in, you know, a, a little bit of time before uh, the next presidential election starts becoming serious, right? There, there's a little bit of speculation that the Democrats are, you know, kind of ready to move past Biden. Um, I don't know, Rev. I don't know who gets in a room one day and says, hey, um, how mentally able is Joe Biden? What will his condition be in a year, two years? Um, I mean, we know he's a man in decline, and he accused other people of being demented yesterday. I don't know if you saw that or not. (laughs) I'm like, wow, okay. Um, That would be like me saying, boy, they got a lot of opinions. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, wow, really? Self-awareness. Yeah, so so, yeah, that's a total lack of (laughs) self-awareness. So um, yeah, I don't like that guy because he got so many opinions. You know, I mean, my wife would be like, really? Okay. Um, Wow. Um, the, the arrogance that, that, that reeks from, but but I mean no. Joe, Joe said that they were um what what financially demented or something to, to that effect. Budget, uh you know budgetarily demented. Um wow okay so so Joe's going to accuse someone of being um somewhat demented. Mm. But but once again, th- th- there's not a way up here yet. I mean there there will be. I mean there, there'll be a eventually 
will have an investigation. It'll be either Comer or, or Jordan. They'll lead an investigation. And I think the investigation will center once again on what Bobolinsky said. You know, that Joe Biden knew exactly what Hunter Biden was doing. He was complicit in the activities of Hunter Biden. And, and families are off limits. I mean, you've heard me say that as a former politician whose kid had a DUI on election day. I mean, I've always felt that was inappropriate to incorporate a families until the family begins to basically monetize the notoriety of the political prowess of, the, you know, of, 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 of Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or the Bushes or whomever. I think the family's off limits until the family begins to kind of accept favor for being or from being a, you know, the kid or the spouse of a, uh, you know, of a powerful politician. Yeah, they're not just family then. They're in the business. They're in the business of politics, and I think they're fair game. And, and you know, here's kind of an interesting story um, or an interesting talking point. What other than politics could Biden have gotten wealthy on? I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second. I mean, the, the, the guy was able to buy a home formerly owned by the DuPonts. I mean, his kid has lived a very extravagant lifestyle despite being an addict and, and having some big, big challenges in his life. And I don't celebrate any of that. I mean, I don't take any glee or joy in Hunter Biden's misgivings or transgressions or the way he's conducted himself. But once again, when, when Joe... You know, th- this would probably be the most interesting conversation. I mean, if it were a blockbuster uh, movie, did Joe initiate or did Hunter? In other words, did, did Joe Biden see something tells me that Joe's trying to take care of his kid and he knows his kid's got issues and he goes to Hunter and says, Hunter, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to point you in two directions. If, if you'll take care of these two accounts, everything will be okay. You'll be financially secure forever. Now, I could eventually get myself in trouble, but the media run interference for me. I mean, I've got a D beside my name. You know, I've, um, I've gained favor with the Democrat mainstream media, the liberal mainstream media, because I've never been uh, that guy. You know what I mean? So, so, so if we ever get called to the carpet, everything will be just fine. But you ask a question about the timing. I mean, there are a couple of reasons to be suspicious about the timing. One is the Republicans all of a sudden gain control. And there are no secrets in Washington. That's the astounding part of Madoff. Madoff, I mean, Madoff was turned into the Security Exchange Commission three times. And, and you know, I mean, he was asked to answer questions, and he didn't provide adequate answers. But he was so entrenched in that world, nobody wanted to be the one that was wrong. I mean, if you come after Bernie Madoff, I mean, there was a statistician that worked at a financial firm. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a, um, I mean, there's a, a pretty accurate accounting. There was a money manager in New York, imagine that, um, that goes to his analytics department and says, here's what Madoff's doing, duplicate it. He never loses, even in bad markets. I mean, his returns are not as good as, you know, they are in up markets, but even in bad markets, Bernie figures out a way to make money. So they carry it to this, um, I mean, he's kind of a statistics guru. He's a mathematician. I mean, he majors in quantum physics and quantum formulas and blah, 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 blah. I mean, he's one of these, um, you know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. one of these uh, prodigies, so to speak. And he's got a blackboard, and it goes all the way around the room, and he does all this, X equals Y, equals Z, and he goes back and he says, hey, it's impossible. This guy's a fraud. I mean, this guy's an absolute fraud. And because this company goes to him and says, recreate the Madoff model, he goes to the SEC, and he says, look, I don't know how to change a tire. I don't know how to boil water, but I know how to do math. And there's nothing about what Bernie Madoff does 
that leads me to believe it's real. And the SEC goes to see Madoff. And they sit down and they make him explain. And when they leave, they say, Bernie's lying, but we don't want to be the ones that, that could be wrong about Bernie. What if Bernie is telling the truth? So there were people early. So there are people in Washington right now drinking a cup of coffee at a Starbucks at DuPont Circle saying, ah, it's about time they found Joe out. But people use one another in that world. The lobbyists, the consultants, the politicians, the staffers. I mean, everybody's got everybody kind of in, in cahoots one with another. I mean, it's the nature of American government. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And when someone becomes expendable, which Joe may be now, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea what the DNC's thinking about the 2024 presidential election. I mean, we've assumed that Joe's their best choice, but they may know something that we don't know. And the second the Republicans take over the House, the Democrats may have accepted, wow, this is going to get ugly. I mean, if you put a bulldog like Jim Jordan in charge of an oversight committee or an investigative committee via judiciary, this could get real negative in a hurry. So let's go ahead and start down that road. Let's kind of handle, in other words, less um, this would be damage control to some degree. And, and I think we're seeing nuggets um, drips of information and drips of information and drips of information that lead us to believe what most people have always been suspicious of. When Bob Alinsky sat down with Tucker, there's no doubt in my mind, and I've got a pretty good BS meter, there was no doubt in my mind that he was telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And he was offended that nobody took him seriously. Well, now you've got an investigative committee led by Republicans who are going to be very aggressive in pursuing how much Joe Biden was in control of Hunter Biden's gainful employment. I mean, that, at the end of the day, if, if Trump set up Ivanka and Jared Kushner, but, but see, Ivanka and Jared had a reputation prior to being in politics. I mean, you couldn't say, hey, Ivanka's never done anything to amount to anything. I mean, you can like what she did. You can dislike the fact that she shares the former president's last name, Jared Kushner. I mean, you could say he has a lot of questionable business dealings, but he had business dealings, right? I mean, what about Hunter Biden leads you to believe he is of value to any organization at all? Much less 50 grand a month, much less $8 million in consulting fees. Really? You can debate how crooked Kushner is. Is he a, is he a slumlord? You can debate Ivanka. You know, what, what did Ivanka do in Saudi Arabia? What did she, okay, those are fair debate. I mean, I'm willing to have that debate. Did, did Ivanka and Jared cash in on being, you know, the, um, the family member of a former president? Maybe, maybe not. Let's have that investigation. Let's find out. Let's get to the bottom of it. But you can't lump Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and Hunter Biden in the same category. There's no way. Show me a video of Ivanka and Jared like Hunter. Show me the, the past transgressions and the lifestyles of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden was a desperate young person. And Joe Biden was his father. And Joe Biden did what most parents would do. They tried to figure out a way to aid and assist their kid. But you can't do it on the back of the taxpayer. You can't sell political influence. You can run Trump Enterprises however you choose. If Donald Trump decided that his daughter needed help, and she's in a really, really bad place, and he, you know, um, cooks the books to take care of Ivanka. In other words, he's paying Ivanka a million dollars a year to basically stay home and do nothing. That's Donald Trump's business. I mean, it's a privately held company. It's not taxpayer subsidized. But that's not what happened with Hunter and Joe Biden. The only money Joe Biden had available in his world was taxpayer dollars. 
consulting and lobbying fees doing what? Trying to get more taxpayer dollars and gain political favor. And he decided, I believe, to basically sell his soul to a dollar. And, and here we are speculating on what may or may not have happened. And, and once again, I think the committees will start. I think the investigations will begin. And I think we'll eventually find out that Joe Biden is the equivalent in American government to Bernie Madoff on Wall Street. Take a break. Back in just a few. I got an interesting story here. I want to hold on. We got Ryan Schmelz will be with us in just a couple of minutes to talk about the um, the latest inside the belly of the beast, inside the beltway about the um, the documents, the classified uh, material. But I just think to compare what Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner did to Hunter Biden, I mean, and I, and I sound like I'm being very judgmental about a family. No, I, I don't have any idea. I don't know what Joe Biden's relationship is with Hunter. I don't have any idea. I mean, I know Joe Biden has said he's the smartest guy I've ever met. Maybe he is. Maybe he's a underutilized talent. Uh, you know, and, and he's got some struggles, man. And I don't celebrate on anybody having struggles. But when somebody makes the equivalency of, well, I mean, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump did X, Y, or Z prior to coming to the White House. I mean, here, here's the story with Trump. I mean, and you know where I'm headed here. There's only one American president or one American politician that I know of that went to Washington and his net worth was less when he left. Uh, that's Donald Trump. I mean, that's indisputable. Trump had more money before he got in politics than he does today. I mean, remember the PGA events. Remember some of the boycotts. Remember some of the um, some of the struggles his business had as a result of him being in politics and doing things against the grain and taking on the establishment, the status quo, the machine. Um, so to suggest that Trump got in politics for the same reason as Biden, it's just genuine. I mean, that's just disingenuous. I mean, there's no comparison there. And the um, I mean, the tax returns now clearly show that Donald Trump was wealthier when he got in politics than he was. Um, the last tax return we should be interested in in Washington is Donald Trump. I'd much rather see Nancy Pelosi. Of course you had, or any of the other politicians <laughs> who have gotten filthy rich and wealthy on, you know, a buck 85 a year, which is what many members of Congress have done. Uh, but But a lot of this is conjecture. You know, a lot of this is speculation. There are nuggets that we know, but there's a um, kind of a, um, a connecting of the dots that we don't know. And um, and I've got an opinion. You've got an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. And, um, you know, where these revelations lead, I don't have any idea. But the Republicans are in charge of the House, and there will be a full-fledged investigation, not only led by special counsel her, but also by some of the Republican leadership in the House and some of these oversight and judiciary committees to find out exactly what did happen. Why were those documents there? Why did Hunter Biden have access to the property where the documents were held? Why was Joe Biden paying Hunter Biden or Hunter Biden paying Joe Biden nearly $50,000 a month for rent? We don't know the answer to that. I hope we do find out the answer. Um, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm good. How are you doing? We are doing well. So inside the Beltway, what is the latest on the um, on the Biden documents? Right. So, you know, after another batch of documents were found over the weekend, you know, uh, James Comer of that House Oversight Committee has been asking for records of those who visited the Delaware home of President Biden uh, in order to see who may have had access to glass of records and how they got to the president's properties. But the White House Counsel's Office telling Fox News that they do not have a visitor log for President Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home. So the GOP is going to have to find out 
uh, who visited that home a different way. Ryan, under whose purview will this fall? In other words, you've got special counsel heard doing his thing. You've got an oversight committee, judiciary committee. Who eventually in the House will be in charge uh, of getting answers to the questions Republicans have asked? Well, you know, certainly the timeline is going to be hard to figure out here when it comes to the special counsel. We don't know how long it's going to take him to complete this investigation and what what goes on next there. And it's likely we're not going to get too many answers uh, while this investigation is ongoing. So, you know, I think a lot of the attention is going to be on the House Oversight Committee and what their next steps are here. You know, what hearings are they going to have? What information are they going to demand next? Uh, and what information are they going to be able to obtain? So I think that's kind of going to be the next steps here in terms of what, what information we're going to learn is kind of just focusing on the House Oversight Committee uh, and where they go from here. Have the Democrats had much to say, Ryan? Obviously, the, the, the Republicans have pounced. You expect that in, in American politics. The two-party system has led to, you know, every time one slips and falls, the other pounces. But, but what is the narrative of the Democrats, or what do you suspect the narrative of the Democrats is? Well, most Democrats who, who commented publicly, publicly on the special counsel have kind of mostly said that it's the right thing to do, that, it's, that they're following the right protocol and Merrick Garland's handling it the right way. But we haven't really gotten too much uh, reaction from the latest batch of documents that have been found. And, you know, the, the Democrats got a busy week, and so do the Republicans uh, in terms of, of legislative priorities. You know, the debt ceiling is going to be a big talking point uh, on the Hill this week. But, you know, Democrats are going to be hosting their weekly press conferences and they're going to be getting a lot of questions asked about this. So they're going to have to be t- either find a way to answer them or, or they're going to have to be dodging these questions. But, you know, the reality is they're going to be getting asked a lot of questions this week that they haven't really that some of them may not have been answering so far or commenting on so far uh, uh, kind of leading up to this. Does it water down the investigation of Donald Trump? Uh, that's a good question. You know, there's a special, you know, there's a special counsel involved in that investigation. There's a special counsel involved uh, in Biden's investigation. So I don't think it waters it down. You know, the the Justice Department's a big, uh, a big government office, and there's a lot of of different capabilities that they're able to do. So, you know, whether it waters it down politically, I think that remains to be seen and remains, uh, that's a discussion the pundits need to have. But, you know, it's, it's still out there and it's still ongoing. But, you know, certainly politically, I think it does kind of change things a little bit, too. Well explained. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, there, there, there's such a, I mean, it's not necessarily a disconnect. That There's such a different way of looking at things inside the Beltway and outside of the Beltway. Um, sometimes I'll play games with these guys and I'll say certain things knowing they're on the phone about the $50,000 payment, the monthly payment from, um, from Hunter Biden. It was father that's taboo, you know, inside the Beltway. I mean, that's kind of the smoking gun because that's real money and people can understand that. I mean, when you start talking about classified documents, what's in it goes writing a book, um, you know, a core value. I mean, it, it gets real confusing. I mean, it really does. I thought about it this morning, you know, the um, the ability to explain things at a soundbite. And I think that gets very confusing because, Rev, it's not one strain. It's a strain here. And then it's something over here and it's something over there. And I think the one thing that people will fundamentally understand is um, there was this house in Delaware, and it's a nice home. It's an extremely nice home. It's nicer than uh, 99.9% of our listeners will ever live in. 
And um, Joe Biden's been a public servant his entire life. So that's how you monetize being in public service by, you know, one day owning a $2 million home. But in this home, there's a garage. And in that garage, there's a Corvette. And not only is there a Corvette, there, there's a, um, a batch of documents. And in that batch of documents, there's some classified material. And Hunter Biden, who's been a very controversial family member of the president, think Billy Carter was controversial. Um, Hunter says, hold my beer, hold my Billy beer, if you will. <laughs> remember the uh, oh, remember yeah. the Billy beer that came out when uh, <laughs> Billy Carter, yeah, hold my Billy beer, let me show you something, <laughs> you Southern gentleman, you. Uh, and, and I think so, so, so that is a, I mean, I think most of us can follow that, right? I mean, I, and, and all of a sudden, okay, but, and here's where, and I think the majority of Americans would say, I don't like that, but I mean, I don't know that that really is as big an issue as conservative talk radio tries to make it out to be. But, but all of a sudden you say, hey, and did you know that Joe Biden was being paid $50,000 a month for his son to, as Charles said, run a bedroom there? That's when the American public's rabbit ears, all of a sudden, they understand that. Right, so, so so he's paying a yearly salary. The son's paying a yearly salary to the father to rent a bedroom in the house that not only houses his Corvette, but also houses, you know, confidential classified information. That's when everybody, that's kind of the aha it's moment. It's easy to understand. It sure it is. That doesn't make sense. Something about that stinks. Now, the majority of people are watching Seinfeld. They don't know what about that stinks. They don't know what about that reeks of, you know, political favor, political, you know, gamesmanship. And, but, but something about that just doesn't make much sense. So that's when you go the next step. And I got to believe if, if I've come up with this, um, you know, way to attack, so to speak, Jim Jordan certainly has. Some of the very able Republicans in the House, a few of them, um, some aren't so able, um, but Jordan's one of the able Republicans. Um, some of the able Republicans, they'll, they'll construct that for the American public to consume. Now, now, here's the problem. Most of the American public won't be made aware because the media will refuse to report it. I mean, if it's not Fox News, I think the Wall Street Journal will be forced at some point in time to maintain credibility by reporting on this, um, this situation, this occurrence. Um, who would be the most compelling witnesses is another question. I mean, you got to believe Bobolinsky comes back and appears before, you know, the Senate House Judiciary Committee. You got to believe Hunter Biden will be compelled, whether he comes or not, or whether he pleads to fifth. I don't have any idea, but you got to believe Hunter Biden will be asked to explain this 50 grand a month you're paying to your father and what exactly were you paying for? I mean, to me, that, that, that's the fundamental question that we know today. I mean, I think there's more to come. I think there's a lot more here. I mean, I think there's um, story after story like this. Really? But, but this has led us to, well, I mean, this centers on the home. And as Charles said, it's not renting the home, it's renting a bedroom in the home. I mean, th this is, once again, I think there's a, I think there's probably seven or eight or 10 other stories similar to this that we haven't been made aware about, don't fully know about, don't understand. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the, um, I mean, I think this was a way to funnel back money to Joe Biden. I mean, what do you think, Rev? You're a reasonable soul. I mean, you, you've got it's a house. obvious to me sure that that's it is. the case. It absolutely is. But, but it's got to be corroborated. Right. I mean, there, there's got to be, you can't, you can't speculate. I mean, we know this has happened. And that, that goes back to the fact pattern. I mean, there, there are facts here. And if I'm Jim Jordan, that's the way I introduce the case. We've got this home in Delaware that the president owns. The president was renting a room to his son in that home for $50,000 a month. 
That's a pretty swanky bedroom as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, in that, you say $600,000 a year. So he's paying $600,000 a year to rent a bedroom in a $2 million home. Why not buy the home? You know, why not pay the mortgage? Well, we know why not. Home, by the way. Because you can't funnel money doing that. And in this home, and and see, that's where the the something box came along that Larry, Larry, and I debated last week. Uh, Because I think last week we were kind of, um, we were speculating as to whether or not the her, because this was the day after Merrick Garland announced a special counsel. And, And we're all focused on that special counsel. And the majority of us said, well, there's nothing to see here. You know why? I mean, that's a deep stater. I mean, you know, do we really believe that the uh, the fox guard of the hen house is the right way to do this? Well, all of a sudden, there's this new nugget of information that has made, uh, been made public. So my anticipation is not on the her investigation. My interest is um, the bedroom in the home that costs Hunter Biden 50 grand a month, the home that also... Um, housed a Corvette and classified documents. So let her do his thing. I mean, let her investigate. And we'll find out how the documents got there. Um, were they top secret? Were they military related? Were they national security related? That's not the story I'm most interested in. Because politicians make mistakes. Every president in my lifetime has probably mishandled classified documentation. You agree? I agree. Obama did it. Bush did it. Reagan probably did it. Carter probably did it. Every president in American history has taken things with them when leaving the White House or building a presidential library that they probably should not have. The majority of those have gotten corrected, and there's been slaps on the wrist and reprimands by the um, administrative state. But but Trump changed the rules. I mean, when, when Trump did it, you had men with guns. You had early morning raids. You had plundering through the wives, you know, closet. So, so that was kind of the game changer. So it's a new normal as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if this is the treatment that former presidents get or current presidents get when mishandling classified information, then turnaround is fair play. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if it's men with guns, early morning raids, plundering through closets of spouses and family members, then that's going to be the normal now. And, you know, let's pull Biden's Corvette out of the garage and let's take a good hard search of the premise. But the $50,000 monthly payment, I think, is um, the proverbial smoking gun. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, um, this yeah this this doesn't pass the smell test, especially the, the 50 grand a month so-called rent, you know, smacks of money laundering. Uh I want to know: Did uh, did old Joe claim that fifty grand a month as personal income, and did he pay taxes on it? He did not. Okay, well, there's another problem. Uh, so, uh, uh, my wife says that that we need to to check the trunk of that Corvette. She thinks there's something special in there. <laughs> thank, th- <laughs> thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. Eight four three. Six six one zero nine three seven is our number, and I'll be honest. As someone who has always admired Corvettes as the uh, kind of the consummate American muscle car, it's a nice Corvette. I mean, it's one of these mid sixty convertible Ooh, yeah. models. Heck yeah, and that car is probably north of a hundred grand, and I would imagine it's low miles, um, driven only to Ukraine and and <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, drove it to Beijing. Well, I mean, you know, when you think about the rear springs. 
how many millions of dollars would cause damage or how many would weaken the the leaf springs the coil springs on the back of the coil springs on the back of a corvette how many um how many briefcases of money can you fit in the back of a uh that'd be a good question for twitter how many briefcases of uh, moolah can you fit in the back of a uh, 66 corvette convertible well, biden loves that car that's why he was so offended when peter Ducey inferred that it may not be in a locked garage all the time <laughs> he, he next ripped. to those documents or whatever here i am with the country saying you ready he bowed up <laughs> when um when Ducey accused him of just randomly keeping his Corvette on the curbside. I mean, it's like, no, you talk about my kid, my family, and my own. They're talking and my about my classified it. documents. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there, there's Don't some documents in there shouldn't be. Don't you think I keep my Corvette out of the curb? No way, no how. Take a break. Back in just a few. I want to go down. The, Dr. Bold will be here at eight o'clock, and we'll probably shift gears and get to another subject or topic. But there there's several stories that that I find very interesting right now. One is Minnesota, one is Wyoming, one is California. I've always felt that federalism was the safety valve that allowed, if states get so incompatible one with another, I mean, in other words, what, what goes in Wyoming probably ain't real popular in California. And what happens in California, the cowboys in Wyoming probably <laughs> don't think very much of. And I've always felt that federalism was intended to be somewhat of a pressure valve. That when the country got so hot, you know, when we got so frustrated with one another, when when you don't like me and I don't like you and you want to do these liberal things and I want to do these conservative things, that federalism allows the states to basically dictate the terms and conditions of how they govern themselves. And there are three stories out there. Remember last week or the week before when we talked about Tennessee and the Tennessee General Assembly passed a law basically saying that if you are driving a car drunk and kill someone and that someone has a minor child, you're responsible for custody of that minor, not keeping the kid, but financially caring for the kid. And it's like, wow, okay, that's out there. Well, is it? I don't know. But that flies in Tennessee. Now, there's a reparations policy in San Francisco. Um, the San Francisco Reparations Committee have rep- uh, recommended or made recommendations to the General Assembly in, um, in California about how to compensate some of their um, black residents for, you know, sins of the past. That's kind of interesting. You, you go to Wyoming, and there's a story. I don't know if you saw this or not. Um, Wyoming lawmakers are basically proposing a ban on the sale of electric vehicles. <laughs> Ca- California says... After 2035, you can't you can't buy an internal combustion engine. And Wyoming is saying after 2035, you can't buy anything but an internal mm. combustion engine. And I think the country has gotten so overheated that we're looking for places for for relief. And and I just I think the um the state legislatures will be the the laboratories for solving some of the problems in America. Yeah, those views um, are so opposing. What completely can you, what and totally can you do about opposing to one I mean, another. Where do we end up? What do I mean? We're the United States of America. You know, we. Uh, I, I read a story this morning about um, some of these states arguing for a flat tax. It's kind of interesting. You've always argued for a um, a simpler way to tax mm-hmm. the private sector. Um, that there are about eight or nine or ten states legislatively, as we speak, as they go back into session for the latest year, they're going to contemplate whether or not have a flat state tax of about three percent. Two and a half to three percent. Doesn't matter how much you make. Doesn't matter how many exemptions or, or write-offs you have. Um, you're going to pay a flat tax of two and a half, three percent 
Uh, what is the mindset behind that? Simplifying the tax code. You know, you make $100,000, you owe me $2,500. Um, you can pay it, you know, at, during your pay period or um, quarterly as self-employed and, and you know, LLCs and S-Corps do. Um, but, but just simplifying the tax code. Well, there's a couple of other states, um, Seattle, Washington in particular, that, that are f- complicating the tax code. Well, I mean, Washington will be a more liberal state than some of these southern states that are working on. In fact, I read an article this morning sent to, um, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to send it to Jordan Lowe and, and Rick and Ba about, um, it might be Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. Indiana's a red state, and they're um, considering whether or not to have a flat state income tax. Just a simplification um, of, of the state tax. It'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 3%. What do conservatives think of that? Well, I mean, liberals probably don't like it because they'd rather the government be complicated to maintain employment of all the bureaucrats. Um, it's just kind of interesting that there are a lot of states trying a lot of different things. And I think that's always been the intent of federalism. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. So there are no visitor logs at the Biden private residence. That doesn't surprise me that they would say there are no visitor logs, but you're not going to convince me that there's not a secret service member or two or three who has a pretty good accounting of who came and went at the, um, at the president's residence. We'll see how that flushes itself out. I still think the smoking gun as we speak is the $50,000 a month payment from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden for a bedroom and a home that's worth $2 million. I mean, that's still to me, um, somebody explain that. I mean, if you could explain that, then, then you know, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll call the dogs off, so to speak. But good luck explaining, um, explaining that. Dr. Will Bolt is with us. Hey, He's um, history chair, Francis Marion University, rocking his Buffalo Bills jacket See that. Uh, this morning. <laughs> good morning, sir. That's well. What, what's the old saying, right? Uh, an ugly win is better than a pretty loss. It was so, an ugly win. A but, win but, is a win, though. But the Bengals had an ugly win. That's exactly. After the game, we are like, oh, my God, how are we going to f- compete against Cincinnati? But Cincinnati didn't look that good, got banged up as well. So the game's in Buffalo, so I'm cautiously optimistic. And here's the deal. I mean, let's go to the NFL for a second. Buffalo or Cincinnati are going to have to beat one or the other yep. and then beat Kansas yeah, City right. more than likely. Tough, tough That's road. a heavy lift. Yes, I mean, you is. win a wild card game, and you were expected to win those wild card games because they're the better team. But all of a sudden, they play against one another. They're going to have to empty the tank, yep. and one team will be left standing. Because I think Dr. Bolt would agree. Pretty even teams, Buffalo and Cincinnati. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're dominant quarterbacks, elite franchise quarterbacks, a lot of um, ancillary parts. But then you probably got to go to Kansas City and figure out a way to win that That's to get that's to the reward. That's why the, the Bills were so desperate to try and get the one seed, so you would just have to play one of them. And now it's a, it's a much tougher road. But, hey, you know, th- things have been kind of lining up for the Bills. Maybe just, you know, there's, I think they're going to get an emotional this, list. This may be a year you guys lose another Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, Who knows? Too soon. Come, <laughs> Who knows? come on. How many, how only, many? only team to go to four straight yeah, and, Super Bowls. And then win how many? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, uh, uh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> stick that knife in and twist it. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's go to, um, I'm going to touch on two things this morning. Um, the one, the, the first thing I'm going to touch on is Kevin McCarthy is is making a recommendation, maybe. We don't know he's going to right. do this. There's some scuttlebutt out there about expunging the impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, when I read that, I thought to myself, if anybody has ever tried that, it's probably Andrew Jackson. <laughs> and you are absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> See, that doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. Didn't just try it. Succeeded in doing it. When, where, why, and how. 
I'll give you, I'll give you the abbreviated version. Uh, 1832 Jackson is running for re-election, and his opponents decide they're going to make this uh, a referendum on the National Bank. So they pass a bill uh, to recharter the, the National Bank. Jackson vetoes it. So again, it's a, it's a campaign. A vote for Jackson is a vote against the bank. A vote for his opponent, Henry Clay, is a vote for the bank. Jackson wins in a landslide, and Jackson figures, all right, he now has a mandate to crush the bank. And so what Jackson does is he now decides he's going to remove all of the government's deposits from the bank. The problem is— What do you is, mean remove the government? <laughs> he's he's going to play Jesse James. He's going he's to be a bank So he robber. robs the bank. Exactly. <laughs> and he's going to put the bank—he's going to put all of the bank's money into pet banks or state banks that were run by his friends. Yeah, nothing wrong a little cronyism. I mean, it happens in politics— all the time. Now, Jackson cannot give the order as president. Only the Secretary of the Treasury can do it. So Jackson, Secretary of the Treasury, Louis McLean says, I don't think this is a good idea. And Jackson likes him. So he says, all right, guess what? You're now Secretary of State. He finds a guy by the name of William Duane who hated the bank. And he says, guess what? All right, give the order. And Duane drags his feet. And Jackson keeps kind of nudging him. I'd like you to give the order. And Dwayne finally says, Mr. President, I think it's a bad idea. And so Jackson does, much like Donald Trump, you're fired. So Jackson removes him, takes his attorney general, Roger Tawney, guess what? You're now Secretary of the Treasury. Tawney can read between the lines, gives the order. Now, this is all happening while Congress is not in session. All right, so Tawney gives the order, and so it basically robs the bank. The second bank has no funds. Uh, the president of the second bank, Nicholas Biddle, says, well, I got a really easy job. I'm the president of a bank with no money in it. So Biddle now says he's going to call in all of the loans. So if you owed the bank money, uh, Biddle says, I need it now. And if you say, well, I don't have any money, I can't make it now, Biddle says, all right, I'll take your farm. I'll take your business. I'll take your land. So Biddle creates an incredible crisis, a credit crisis, and people go running to the White House every day saying to Jackson, hey, just give in, right? Put the money back, recharter the bank. Uh, and let this guy have what he wants. And Jack says, heck no, I'm not going to bow down. I says, no, I'm stubborn. I think the bank is dangerous. So Congress comes into session. The first thing they do is they reject Tawney as the Secretary of the Treasury, and they now look around and say, all right, well, we don't have the votes. We can't impeach him in the House, but we've got a majority in the Senate, so we're going to pass a censure resolution. We're going to censure the president for exceeding his powers as president of the United States. Jackson is irate. He writes a 10-page letter to the Senate saying, you cannot do this. It violates the Constitution, and the Senate doesn't even bother uh, to read it. Uh, and so what happens is it it's in 1837, Jackson supporters, the Democrats, now have a majority uh, in the Senate. And one of the last things before Jackson leaves the presidency is Jackson's friends now officially expunge the censure resolution, and they actually take the official Senate journal. The clerk walks up, and they put a bracket around it saying, expunged by order of the Senate, 1837. So there is a precedent uh, for expunging or removing uh, something like this. Now it gets a little murky because impeachment is, in fact, constitutional. And, of course, if there's still the, there'd still be the record of the trial in the Senate, but hey, it's, it's, it's good for my business, and there is, in fact, a precedent. So if McCarthy and the Republicans want to go down that road, it has been done before. So what will that look like? I mean, if it, it, today's <laughs> politics, I mean, if McCarthy decides to pursue this, mm -hmm. it, what walk us through procedurally what will happen. I think it would just be a simple 
majority vote would be all that we need. It would be a simple resolution saying that the impeachment of Donald Trump, either one or both of them, uh, is removed. That essentially it did not happen. Now, this could then lead to, like, if the Democrats ever took back control of the House, they could say, we're bringing it back. <laughs> so you could have a whole series of revolving doors. Eventually, maybe cooler heads would prevail. But uh, I, it, it is on the table. It would be fun to kind of see how it would go. Might put some Republicans in a tough spot, some of the ones in, in districts that Biden won, uh, maybe in, in some of those districts in New York, but be fascinating to watch. Is But, but in, the, um, in the overriding narrative, Trump is still a very relevant political figure. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're talking about? Every Republican has to consider his relationship or her relationship with Donald Trump. As of right now, for maybe not as much six months ago. Sure. But he's still the the 800-pound guy in the room. I mean, you can't, you you don't want to make an enemy of him right now, I would say. Well, let's do this. Trump, while we're talking about Trump. So Trump comes to the White House and brings his family with him. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who wants the job? You want one? Okay, here. Here's the job, Don Jr. Here's the job, Ivanka. Here's the job, uh, Jared Kushner. Um, and now we got this Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story. Um, I would imagine the Democrats think the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story is less dastardly than Ivanka and Jared and Donald. But but I, what, be, I bet they want to think that. Well, yeah. you other, good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah. But um, because it looks like there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of smoke here. Absolutely. And, uh, and we'll find out whether there's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you believe that, not a bolt. I mean, you really believe that um, that we're beginning yeah. to find out Joe Biden is not as virtuous a politician <laughs> as many a, have believed. After the first Battle of Bull Run during the Civil War, a terrible defeat for the North, a Republican congressman asked Lincoln, "What what happened?" And Lincoln put his head down and said, it's bad. It's darn bad, except he didn't use darn. I, yeah, I think this is just terrible for the Democrats. They had a lot of favorable wins. They cannot go after Trump now for the documents that he had at Mar-a-Lago. They really can't, can they? No, it's right. It's, 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 it's like a trade. That's right. Let's, we're going to let this go now if you maybe back off this. But we're back talking about Hunter again. You've got a bulldog in Jim Jordan. He's got to be salivating. It's Christmas morning for this guy. It's like he won the lottery as a result of this. And you're going to have probably primetime hearings. And if, if the president says his son's a pretty smart guy, getting grilled on national television, we, we might find out. You know, He's going to plead the fifth. But uh, get your popcorn ready. But if that? someone were paying me 50 grand a month for a bedroom, I'd call it whatever he wanted to be, whatever he wanted to be called. Early American history is, is littered with political characters. What what yeah. I mean are there are there are there certain leaders who involved or incorporated their families more than others? John Quincy Adams had a good son. John Quincy Adams who eventually became president. He brought him abroad uh, to diplomatic missions, and of course, John Quincy Adams eventually became uh, before president one of our best diplomats. And so there was really nothing, uh, even though Andrew Jackson and charged him with bargain and corruption in an election, uh, he was he wasn't using his his position as as a foreign minister, uh, to line his own pockets. When Andrew Jackson becomes president, he brings his niece and nephew with him uh, into the, they're living in the White House. And Andrew Jackson wanted them to socialize with a certain couple, and they wouldn't do it. And so Jackson politely asked them, you know, please go out to dinner with them, right? Be seen in public with this these individuals. And they said, no, uh, it got so bad that they're living in the White House. Jackson is writing letters to his own nephew, who's two doors down, rather than having a normal conversation, it gets comical. Uh, but eventually, Jackson will banish uh, his niece and nephew from the White House. Says, "Get out of here!" And they go crawling back uh, to Tennessee. 
Uh, maybe the best ex- or the other example is Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, his eldest son, Robert, Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, desperately wanted to volunteer and serve in the Union Army. Uh, Lincoln had already lost two sons uh, and figured the strain would just be too much on his wife if something happened to their eldest one, sent him to Harvard, and his son just kept begging, pleading with him, let me serve. I have to serve every other young man at this time. Uh, how can I run for office later on if I if I sit this out? And so Lincoln, as he was powers as president, pulled some strings and essentially got him assigned as a staff officer uh, on Grant's staff and pretty much told Grant, uh, you keep this guy six miles behind the lines. I don't want an errant shell uh, coming and hitting this guy. And if this guy gets too close to the lines and the Confederates get him uh, as a prisoner, that's going to cause us lots of problems. And so the letter that Lincoln wrote to Grant has been preserved. Uh, but again, if you're, if you're president, you give it's one of the little perks. You can kind of pull some strings and protect your kids. Did um, The Kennedys did some of that. I mean, with Robert Kennedy serving as JFK's. That's his own I brother. mean, you know, going after the mob and all these other good. That didn't work out so well for the guy. Uh, but the Kennedys, either one of them, yeah. yeah. But but I mean, it, it, it's not unusual for a president or a political leader, for that matter, of any sort, to involve their family. I mean, they uh, they, they would. I mean, if, if Trump, I mean, there was nobody in Washington Trump could trust other than his family sure. members. Well, he was an outsider. Sure. And so you're naturally going to want to bring uh, those around you that you can trust. And again, lots of guys. Andrew Jackson, not just his niece and nephew, brought a lot of guys from Tennessee. Uh, John Overton, who always was Jackson's sort of fixer, if you will. Uh, his second, when he ever had to fight a duel, uh, he was with Jackson in the White House. <laughs> if he ever had to fight a duel, um, you know what I mean? You got to have somebody there for you. <laughs> you got to have you're somebody who wouldn't you know, negotiate. The, and the second is there in case if somebody breaks the rules, you know, if they shoot before they're supposed to, uh, he's got your back. He's going to take his pistol out and cut that guy down as well. And so they had that Jackson, he was his most trusted guy, trusted him with his life and brought him to the White House. He didn't do much. He just kind of sat there and had a room in the White House. You heard me say uh, federalism. You heard me talking about federalism. You were in the lobby, and um, and I was talking about Wyoming and San Francisco, <laughs> California, and, and some of the. When was federalism most prevalent in American politics? Some I mean, of the early American history period. Sure. I mean, you had Hamilton, Jefferson, central planner, more, yeah. more of a. Um, I mean, Je- Jefferson was not a federalist, but he was more of a states' rights kind of yeah. guy. Uh, that the um, he felt the imbalance. He felt the the form of government Hamilton wanted created too much of an imbalance favor toward yeah. but 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 was there a period of time in american history where federalism did reign supreme up until the civil war i mean most americans did do, agree uh even though they would somewhere to say there needs to be more powers for the central government most americans still believe that there should be a division of power once you get to the civil war and of course the, the national government had to assume and acquire all of these powers to carry out uh the war and we've said it before, right? Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's tough to put it back in. So big government was here to stay. And it's really, it's an exponential curve at that point. It only continues through the Gilded Age, the progress of And once you get to the New Deal and World War II, big government is here to stay. Did, did Lincoln violate the Constitution in some of the, um, ah, so, some of the, 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 the ways he governed through the Civil War and, uh, I mean, did he, did he violate there, the Constitution? There, are, there is even some Lincoln defenders who would say Lincoln violated the Constitution in order to preserve it. And what Lincoln did, maybe his most glaring Explain that. of civil liberties, uh, Virginia secedes and Maryland was contemplating secession. And so if Maryland seceded and joined the Confederacy, Washington, D.C., the federal capital, would be surrounded. 
So it was imperative that Maryland remain loyal to the Union. And when Maryland was getting set to vote on secession, uh, Lincoln ordered that some of the pro-secession delegates in Maryland be detained, uh, put in jail without any charges brought against them. And so they missed the vote. Maryland remains loyal to the Union. Uh, after the vote, Lincoln then releases them. Uh, lots of other Americans during the Civil War were detained against their will. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. But again, it was all in the greater good. And Lincoln said, if I don't do this, the Republic is going to fail. So we have to do this. And again, Lincoln has been judged harshly, but in the end, we would say it was the right decision because he won the war. Did anybody challenge Lincoln in the moment? Oh, there's several. Uh, habeas corpus. I mean, did anybody say, you can't do this? Were there, there, were, several were there any hearings? Did, did Congress address it in a politically legal fashion? Oh, there was, in fact, uh, Supreme Court cases. Uh, and in fact, there was a, a story that one of Lincoln's bodyguards, that Lincoln drew up an arrest warrant for the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Tawney. Uh, the guy who we talked about a few seconds ago eventually becomes the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And Tawney, in his memoirs, wrote one day when he was walking up to a courtroom, uh, expected that he was he himself, the chief justice, was going to be arrested by President Lincoln. Nothing came of it, but it tells, just tells you how serious the situation was, that if the president of the United States was even contemplating arresting the chief justice of the Supreme Court, you've got a bit of a constitutional crisis on your hands if that happens. That's very interesting. We'll take a break. We'll be yeah. back in just a few moments with Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University. Um, yeah, believe it or not, families have always been um, associated with presidential campaigns, politics in general. And you really think about it, Rev, when you leave wherever it is you come from to go to Washington, you question whether you can trust anybody. And you learn the hard way. You probably can't. But if you've got those friendly, you know, trusted advisors, you carry as many of those to the swamp. Um, you know, right. Trump refers to as as you possibly can. We'll take a break back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt is with us, history chair, Francis Marion University, talking about early American history and some correlation it has to modern American history. Um, I made mention, Dr. Bolt, uh, last week, and I touched on it yesterday, that I felt, and I did this a bit to provoke, but but I sincerely <laughs> believe that um, that Ronald Reagan was a an admired and revered political figure, but he gets a little too much credit for ending the Cold War. Um, the conservative listeners say, no, he doesn't. I mean, it was Ronald Reagan. He should be on Mount Rushmore. But but the argument I made was um, the, the most important ingredient in that was capitalism and communism. Right, there's and, a great ideological battle. Sure, the, the economic theories that governed each of the nations. What would have been some of the early important foreign policy issues for a fledgling baby of a nation? Well, you go back and the, the big question was, should the United States be involved in, in other nations' affairs or should we essentially be uh, an isolationist nation? And this was sort of the idea that comes from George Washington's farewell address to the American people uh, when he leaves the presidency, like no permanent alliances. And so most Americans interpret this to mean, all right, we're just going to stay out of the affairs of the world and this, is, and this is why we're essentially an isolationist nation until you got to NATO uh, post-World War II. Uh, but the other major issue, of course, is that some Americans did want us to get involved. Uh, this is the era of the Napoleonic Wars when the French Revolution begins to take its turn for the worse. In the United States, we had a, a treaty of alliance with France. And once France is now being under threat from England, many Americans, including Thomas Jefferson, said we have 
an obligation to assist our ally. They had our back during the American Revolution. And of course, it was Alexander Hamilton and the Federalists who said about that treaty, uh, that treaty was with the King of France. And the King of France, he's a little bit shorter, right, because he had his head chopped off. So that treaty is no longer null. That would make void. you shorter, wouldn't it? So exa- yeah, exactly. Never looked at it quite that way, but not a, not not a not a good way to go. I would I would say what. And again, this was the the main argument. Jefferson and his followers, the French Revolution, they were fighting for democracy, a republic like us. Great Britain was still a monarchy, and so it stood to reason. And Jefferson loved his his French wines. Had spent time over there. He's got these highly intellectual people over there. Jefferson wanted us to forge an alliance. Uh, the Federalists are like, no, we have need to have an alliance with Great Britain. And so there's really no room to compromise. So it kind of forced us to be to, to sort of be neutral uh, throughout this conflict. And eventually we have to fight the, the British during the War of 1812. Why would anybody care what side America's on early in our nation's beginning? I mean, who would have been the dominant global powers? I don't want to say the superpower back sure then. But, but I mean, who would have been who would have been the force du jour? Yeah, it, it, it's Great Britain and France, probably Great Britain 1A and France 1B. And they're, they're kind of cool. And they had been sort of like in this this dance for over 100 years uh, to see who was going to be the big dog in Europe and in the world. Uh, you know, one of them got too big for their britches, then the other one would try and form an alliance and knock them down. Uh, the United States, again, we're a new nation, but we have lots of, uh, lots of agricultural resources uh, that they needed now for their armies. And so they both wanted to play nice with the United States of America and try and have us on their side. And so things got so desperate that the British were needed men for their Navy. They started stopping American ships and impressing, uh, forcing American sailors to serve in the British Navy. Uh, And at one point in 1807, they fired on an American naval ship, killing several sailors and then boarded the ship and forced them uh, to serve in the British Navy. And nowadays, right, if a foreign ship fired on an American ship, we would demand a declaration of war. This happened when Jefferson was president and Jefferson said, no, we're not going to war uh, because Jefferson had cut so much of the debt off. And he realized if we go to war, all of this hard work, all of this penny pinching I've done for the past seven years, it's going to go to waste. And so Jefferson kicks the can down the road. We declare war in 1812 and the national debt triples. Uh, in the span of just a few years. So w- when did we begin? I, I get the idea. You're talking about war and, and, and all these other sorts of things. But when did we get the idea of international trade, foreign trade, um, you know, common currencies? I mean, I know that that's that's further down the road. I sure, get sure. that. But but who was perceptive enough? Was it Jefferson? Was it Hamilton? I mean, who had the notion that eventually America would incorporate itself as an economic and I guess economically is what I'm talking about here, um, who was perceptive enough early in the days to to not worry about hey what what side did we get on when a war starts? I mean I understand <laughs> that's kind of a primitive um, understanding of American po- excuse me foreign totally. policy, but it always matters uh, what side are we on so to speak. But economically, was anybody in early American history perceptive enough to understand export, import, sure. oh, yeah. foreign trade? No, uh, Hamilton and a lot of the guys who came after him, Henry Clay, oh uh, they wanted high protective tariffs to protect American businesses. But that was in contrast to Jeffersonian government, wasn't it? Well, Jefferson didn't want that. Jefferson said, we don't need industry. That leads to corruption. We should be a nation of farmers because the farmer is the only man who's truly independent. Hamilton, Henry Clay said, no, the path to greatness is industry, manufacturing. Uh, If we do this, if we have this big, robust economy, 
It sends a signal to the rest of the world. It's going to open up markets. We'll be able to ship these. to the We're going to have a seat at the table. Again, this would be a way for us to sort of project our power. And so it's once you really get to after the Civil War and when we complete our Industrial Revolution, uh, then it's a very, very quick step where the United States goes from sort of a, a forgotten, neglected nation. Uh, by the start of the 20th century, we're now suddenly a force to be reckoned with. But but once again, if Jefferson, the Jeffersonian run of of the prominent political theory of American governance would have been from when to when, and how did these who believed that America had an ob- not an obligation, it's in America's best interest to incorporate itself in in global affairs? I mean, I understand, but there had to be some friction there. Right, I'm sure, sure. So so if if the Jeffersonian reign of government would have been from when to when most. Uh, up until the Civil War, most Americans thought of themselves. So, from the nation's founding, up until yeah, to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you're talking about fifty or that sixty long, years. Yeah, Jefferson 70 cast years. long shadows over early American history. I mean, he was a a revered individual. And Jefferson, of course, why do we sort of move away from Jefferson? Well, Jefferson's from the South. He's a slaveholder. The South's on the wrong side of the war, and so that's when the Jeffersonian ideals kind of fall by the wayside. Suddenly, Hamilton who wasn't too, too much highly regarded after his death, uh, suddenly his ideals post-Civil War come back into vogue. It was big government that allowed the, the Union to win the Civil War, and so the Hamiltonian ideal sort of gets a, a rebirth. There's a genesis, if you will. But from the nation's beginning to the Civil War, we were largely governed by Jeffersonian principles Jefferson. and values. Right. That, I mean, t- see, that's an incredible run. I mean, I'm not saying that because I'm a big Jeffersonian and a fan of Thomas Jefferson, but when you think about the fingerprints yeah. of our founders and who's yeah. left the largest fingerprints on our nation, I mean, it's hard to argue it was not Thomas Jefferson. And even Lincoln, who sort of smashes the Jeffersonian ideal, says, I never had a political ideal that didn't come from Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And so even Lincoln, the great centralizer, if you will, who we talked a little while ago, kind of violated the Constitution, considered himself at his heart, at his core, to be a Jeffersonian. But, Dr. Bolt, was it a binary choice? Was it either you're a Hamiltonian or a Jeffersonian? Or were there other <laughs> sorts of um, theories or ideologies to, or political perspectives? kind of like a zero-sum game. Sure. Right? It's either one I mean, kind of way Today it's other. a Republican or a, a Democrat. Democrat. You know, you're, you're voting for one or the other. I mean, you can vote Libertarian, you can vote Green Party. It's not going to matter. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, eventually, we're going to have X number of Republicans, X number of Democrats. I mean, it, it was that. I mean, the, the, the Jeffersonian-Hamiltonian debate, was similar to the Republican-Democrat yeah, debate yeah, in America today? It was probably even more one-sided, though. That, again, the Democratic Party considered themselves the heirs of Jefferson. The Whigs and the Republicans also considered themselves to be, no, no, we're the real heirs uh, to Thomas Jefferson and his philosophy. So just in a very, very incredible man, uh, every, every, every April, Jefferson's birthday was celebrated, commemorated in Washington, D.C., big parties, big celebrations. Uh, you wanted to make sure you gave a toast commemorating, saying something nice about Thomas Jefferson. And so, yeah, it's a very, very important figure in the, the psyche, the memory of the American people in the 19th century. Did Jefferson and Hamilton ever have an amicable moment? <laughs> it's prob- prob- I mean, they, they, they were political foes, no doubt yeah. about it. They, they were, they, they were um, contrasting of one another, no question about it. But personally, is there any recounting conversations or meetings or occasions that they did respect one another? Yeah, these two guys from the moment they met were pretty much at each other's throats. And I may have told you the story before, but the first time Jefferson meets Hamilton, uh, they're waiting outside of a, an office to meet Washington. 
And so there's all these paintings on the wall, these great Enlightenment philosophers, the guys you got to read in the political science class, Newton, Rousseau, Voltaire, all the boring guys. And you know, Hamilton says, wow, these are really great individuals, don't you think, Mr. Jefferson? And this is right in Jefferson's wheelhouse. I mean, he loves reading these political philosophers. And Jefferson says, yes, yes. And then Hamilton says, well, you know who's missing from this, this great collection of minds? And Jefferson says, well, who's missing, Mr. Hamilton? And Hamilton says, well, Julius Caesar is missing. And of course, Julius Caesar, of course, you know, didn't really like democracy. So as soon as Hamilton says that, Jefferson's like, I, I got to kind of keep close tabs on this guy. And so, who, who had Washington's ear more? Oh, it Hamilton. Definitely was, it was Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton had served with Washington, had been a, a very important, a very trusted staff officer during the Revolution. Uh, Washington had lost most of his sons, and so there was this father-son type relationship between Washington and Hamilton. Uh, Washington trusted Hamilton more than any other individual. And so, and Hamilton certainly used that to his advantage in his battles with Jefferson. He used uh, his influence with Washington to get the better of Jefferson for did, a politician. Did John Adams try to have it both ways? <laughs> yeah. poor, poor John Adams winds up as vice president, and so he's kind of excluded from this. And he's he's got to follow George Washington as president. I mean, you don't want to be the guy who follows Washington. You want to be the guy who comes after the guy who comes after him. And Adams was, he was a politician. That's why, I mean, he just made the right moves, didn't have the right following uh, that Washington had. Just the people were devoted to Washington and Hamilton didn't like him. Uh, You know, Hamilton wanted the country to go to war against France. Adams was in favor of it, uh, but Adams realized if we went to war against France, Hamilton would command the army. He's like, I ain't trusting this guy with command of the army, right? A guy who likes Julius Caesar, uh, that might, my, my head might be on a pike at the end of the day. So Adam says, no, 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 we ain't going to war. That's kind of an interesting take. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Hey, great Appreciate stuff. Appreciate all Thank your you. time. Uh, and go Bills, I guess, this weekend. <laughs> be a tough one. What are you smiling about, Rev? I mean, there's, there's I, a... I've just enjoyed this whole segment, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you. I mean, those stories are just awesome. And it's educational. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we don't educate much over the airwaves. <laughs> Dr. Bolt comes up and he raises the collective IQ by you know, a monumental amount, uh, which ain't for saying much yeah. for, for yours truly. I'm enjoying the uh, the uh, tuition-free education here, so thank you, Dr. I'm lucky. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, no student debt. <laughs> and, you get, um, and you get the education uh, nonetheless. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back. 843-661-0937 is our numbers. Uh, six or seven minutes before our last break of this hour. Dr. Bolt's always kind of an interesting uh, it's not a call-in session. It's more of a tutorial about American history. And I he find and I, it so interesting. You know, you know, we don't prep a lot. We just kind of um, make it up as we go. But he has such an enormous knowledge or immense knowledge of, um, uh, you know, early American history and pre-Civil War is really his um, specialty. But obviously, an historian knows the accounting of history from beginning to end to some degree. He does such a, a good job of describing and talking about those, the characters, the political characters from those days. And it almost makes me wish I'd paid a little more attention in school when yeah. I was uh, learning that stuff. Well, I mean, I knew nothing about Jefferson. I mean, I knew Jefferson was the third American president. I knew, or, and the way I characterize these things are much different than a history professor. I thought Adams wanted it both ways. I thought Washington listened too much to Hamilton. I mean, some of these questions we uh, we pose, I know what my opinions of the answers are it's almost like it helps me understand why i believe what i believe when i hear a history professor account uh for some of the um others now now, once again that's early american history 
I mean, I'm of the opinion that Reagan gets too much credit for so you, ending you, the Cold War. You, you, you almost, and you went there a little bit during Dr. Bolt's segment uh, this morning as a follow-up to last week's comments, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily on board with you when you're saying this stuff about Ronald Reagan. I think he gets a lot of credit, and he deserves a lot of I'm credit. I think he gets all of the credit, and I don't think he deserves all of the credit. I'm not a history revisionist. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I read a lot about history revisionism and, you know, what? I mean, that didn't happen the way you said it happened. I mean, there's no doubt Reagan deserves a lot of credit, but he gets all of the credit. When I Googled Reagan Cold War, the first thing that comes up is the Heritage Foundation, how Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. And I think Ronald Reagan had a central um, advantage, and that being, you know, the economic theory that is capitalism. Because at the end of the day, it was a buildup. I mean, it was a buildup of nuclear armaments and military capabilities. And Reagan had the advantage of a capitalist nation. And a capitalist nation is always going to uh, enjoy the benefits of prosperity, economic prosperity, more than a communist country. So so uh, let me ask you this. So if Russia, if the former Soviet Union were the good guys and Reagan was on board and Gorbachev or Stalin or whomever embraced capitalism, how do you think it ends up? I mean, is Reagan, if, if, if the personality and the persuasive power of Ronald Reagan is in charge of the Soviet Union, he's still in charge of a communist nation that is not going to allow people to benefit, but so much. You mean the evil empire? Sure. I mean, I think it is an evil empire. I think right. communism's evil at its core. I think it, co- communism suppresses human capital. And I think capitalism um, basically allows human capital to flourish. Um, human innovation to blossom and 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 we prosper as a result and, of and Reagan with the benefits of capitalism put the pressure on no no question about and it and, and, and Reagan's conviction in believing that this is a worthy endeavor I think that's where Reagan does deserve a lot of the credit right. his willingness or his acceptance of uh, this is going to be painful expensive um, we're going to have to invest a lot more money in American military than we probably anticipated but to to, to basically break the Soviet Union, it's going to take that. So he deserves a lot of credit when it comes to that. But but once again, I hear people all the time saying, you know, back when Reagan won the Cold War. And I feel like saying Reagan didn't win the Cold War. Capitalism won the Cold War. Reagan fostered capitalism in a way, kind of kind of had an execution plan that led to the demise of the, um, of the Soviet but Union. But without Reagan's plan and vision... Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't Wonder know who else would have had that plan or vision. I don't have any idea who would have been. Here's what I will say. It didn't matter what Gorbachev's plan was. He was not going to win. I mean, G- Gorbachev basically, um, I mean, he's the guy, the guy that kind of gave up and said, okay, uncle, you win. I mean, we can't do what you guys can do. And it's obvious our economic theory is it's not going to allow us to compete. That's a weird word, you know, in this um, in this Cold War. And, and Gorbachev was the guy that kind of acquiesced, gave in, and said, you know, let's try a little more capitalism. I mean, Gorbachev really and truly, when you read a lot about it, Gorbachev tried kind of what China's doing today. I mean, it's a communist nation, but they've allowed uh, the infiltration of capitalism in some way, shape, or form. And when you go back and read some of the accountings, um, you know, Chernobyl in 19... That would have been the mid to late 80s, somewhere thereabout. I mean, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Really and truly, that was the beginning of the end. And someone called in last week and talked about the um, the documentary. I watched it, you know, about um, I mean, there was just a breakdown of society. 
but because once people were, you know, that, that ha- they were heavily investing in the military and they weren't producing consumable goods and, and life was tough. You, you've got a military arsenal only rivaled by America, but you don't have any butter. I mean, the old, I mean, there, there was kind of a phrase, you know, butter or guns and Stalin chose guns and, and every, you know, I, I guess Putin and head of the KGB, I mean, it was, um, very monolithic in its governmental approach. And I'm not a historian. I mean, I've read enough to be dangerous. Um, I actually asked Dr. Bolt before he left, if there's somebody get Francis Marion with a quote unquote subspecialty of the cold war, could we get them to come on and give an historical, historically accurate accounting of exactly what happened and when and where and how, but I think the heritage foundation is a conservative Institute. I mean, they want to fan the flames of Reaganism. They want to paint him as a, um, you know, a, a, a unrivaled political leader when it comes to that sort of um, a thing. And I, I just think it's more complicated than that. It doesn't discount my opinion of Reagan. I mean, I've told you, Ra- Reagan, I mean, if, I may, if I'm affected or impacted by any political figure, it's Ronald Reagan. Now, now I didn't register to vote last 40, so I don't have much to show for it. But when I look at my political beliefs and biases and opinions, uh, the majority are a reflection of what Ronald Reagan, and it was not necessarily about him beating or him leading the charge to defeat communism and win the Cold War. It was more about his adherence to capitalism, his um, his pushback against you know big and controlling government. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Last hour of a Tuesday morning, 843-661-0937 is our number. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso in Chicago is with us. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Hey, Ken. Good to be with you. Good. So I'll reserve the comments, and I'll let you give the reporter's version of the story. <laughs> Once you get off the air, I'll, I'll, I'll get more flavor and color added uh, to the story. But I was a presiding officer of the South Carolina State Senate. And as the presiding officer, I was always aware of the attire and wardrobe of the membership. And at times it got a bit controversial. And I remember some of the side discussions that we had. Uh, I want to be careful here about female members of the body. The Missouri House of Representatives is trying to adopt stricter dress codes for their women members. Um, Jeff, I'll defer to you. What is the journalistic report of what the Missouri State Legislature is doing? Well, Missouri Democrats call it a pointless distraction from the issues facing the state. These new rules that require female legislators and staff members to cover their shoulders, to wear a jacket uh, or a cardigan or, or a blazer. Democratic Missouri Rep Ashley on giving an impassioned statement against the bill on the House floor, asking her fellow lawmakers, do you know what it feels like to have a bunch of men in this room looking at your top and trying to decide whether it's appropriate or not? But here's the thing. Um, this this bill was sponsored by uh, another female, uh, Republican Rep. Ann Kelly, uh, who responded saying, you would think that all you would have to do is say dress professionally and women could handle it. Uh, and how is encouraging professionalism wrong, she goes on to say. Uh, she introduced the dress code to ensure decorum uh, and mirror the men's dress code to maintain a formal professional atmosphere on the House floor. So men in the Missouri House of Representatives, they're already required to wear a jacket, a shirt, and, and a tie. A Missouri Republican said that criticism of the dress code was overdone when all the rules did was basically just clarify what's required. I think much like 
every other time that there's uh, some sort of change, there's always somebody who, who, you know, stretches the boundaries and, you know, a rule, rule breaker that, uh, that goes a little, a bit too far. That may be the case here. And we may, we may see some dress code violations and protests as the, the house convenes this week, uh, supposedly, you know, supposedly, you know, supposed to wear the, uh, the, the proper attire, but who knows? I don't know. It was a thing. There's 116 men and 43 women. It'll be very interesting for me to see how this vote plays out. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Yeah. You know, I've, I've told this story before, and I guess now would be an appropriate time to talk about the inappropriateness of, <laughs> of politics. And you've heard me tell this story. Is there an appropriate so the, the first day of the spring, remember uh, me telling you about the first day of spring. Mm-hmm. So the first day of spring, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm presiding. We get in session in January. And I, I'm presiding. I got elected in November. Now you're uh, wearing a robe, so I'm there's wearing, no problem with your attire, I'm, I'm right? I'm royalty. You yeah, know that's right. that. I'm a purple I'm, robe. I'm there in all my regal attire. Yeah. Um, looking at the peasants do their work, <laughs> as um, as you would expect someone such as yours truly to exactly. do. Exactly. But, but, but I'm standing there. Now, now, remember, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. So take that for what it's worth. The first session of South Carolina Senate I ever witnessed, I presided over. So there's another nugget of information about how astute I was to the goings on of the South Carolina General Assembly. So so I get to my post, you know, and I do a pledge. And this would have been the first warm day for y'all. You're from up north, and we have warmer days a lot sooner down south than you guys do uh, in the land of northern aggression. So I am I'm, I'm manning the post, and I've got a uh, the clerk of the Senate to my left, clerk excuse me the uh, the reading clerk to my right, and um. And I called the session into order. Uh, we do a pledge and a prayer and um, bang the gavel. And it's like a, I mean, it's like a, just a, a, a mad dash after that. I mean, it really and truly, that's the last time anybody pays me any attention until I call on a particular member of the Senate. So as, um, and the Lieutenant Governor doesn't do that now. I mean, they've got other prescribed duties. The Senate picks its only, the, the Senate picks its own presiding officer. And they'll rotate, you know, somebody who does it for a while may want to stop and somebody else does it. Anyway, um, first warm day of the session, there are interns from USC, University of South Carolina, who come over and they get extra credits and they're trying to really, you know, build a career. A lot of law students in particular who want to be more familiar with the goings on of, um, of the General Assembly. So I'm standing there and I would have been in my 40s. Uh, let me think. I might have been 50. I, I'm the, there about. I'm, I'm there about. Um, that sick, demented age of midlife. <laughs> So I'm standing there. I bring the session into into order, and you know, bang the gavel. Everybody sits down. They start doing their thing, scurrying about doing their Senate business. And these these college girls stand up, and it's the first warm day, and they all have sundresses. And being the dude I am, I mean, I make no bones about it. Uh-oh. I'm a dude. I look at Jeff, and I'd say, I said, "Damn, you know, <laughs> kind of kind of like that." And he looks at um at John Winges with the reading clerk, and he said. 2.2 seconds and i said well, what do you mean he said well i mean we always wonder on the first warm day how long it takes <laughs> how, long it would take? yeah, how long it takes one of you guys to notice the um the 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 landscape looks a little bit different on the first warm day now i wonder uh, how you ranked since they were betting on how long it would take uh i'll top five yeah i mean you know i'm sure uh, well let me be being a be dude being a dude that's just the way it um just to, but but i wondered when i read the article about missouri th- there were always a female or two that would push the envelope. The, the majority were, and then look, I mean, guys don't have much discretion. I mean, it's almost a uniform. It's a black suit with a red tie or a blue suit with a beige. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's, it, th- th- there were some who got snazzier 
than others, but there are certain parameters or guardrails in place that you can't um, you can't get outside of. It's the decorum of of the um, of the body. But but the women were, were always a bit more provocative, and uh, and and two or three in particular. And it was always interesting. Some of the sidebar conversations about you know what to do about that. I said, I can do what you better do. Leave it alone. You better not raise uh, any. You better you better not say a single word. Let the female members come to the body and say, "Hey, we think this person or that person is a little bit um is a little bit out of line." That's um that's not for me to decide. But I don't know. When I read the article and I read it this morning, I actually saw a news report last night on Twitter about it. It kind of um let me it down. Reminded you of those it reminded days. me <laughs> of those days that um I was um clad in purple velvet mm-hmm. like. You know, what's the song? Uh, it's good to be king mm-hmm. by Tom Petty. If only for a while, stand right. in the velvet and give him a smile. Hey, um, <laughs> it's, it's, we're talking about sports this morning. We talked a lot about the NFL playoffs and the NFL is the 800 pound gorilla, right? I mean, I'm a college oh, football yeah. fan. I love baseball. I love basketball. I love nearly all sports, but, but the, the NFL has become the behemoth of all sports and entertainment. Uh, there, there's no, there's no arguing that, but, but you've argued Rev that baseball is still uh, very much an essential component of the American fabric. I it really, it really and truly is. Uh, we argued about the big markets and some of the big brands in baseball. Um, being a Southerner, the only team the South has ever rallied around has been a baseball team, the Atlanta Braves. The South has never rallied around Jacksonville Jaguars or the Atlanta Falcons or the Carolina Panthers, but the Atlanta Braves is kind of where the um, the SEC goes to say grace with one another. You know what I mean? Alabama hates Auburn. Clemson hates South Carolina until we all get to be Braves fans. And baseball has been kind of a consolidating force in in the South. The Braves being a big part of that. Um, I went to the Blue Jays games back in the day when they got the incident draft on Tuesday nights in particular. But um, one thing that has excited me is this new ownership of the Florence Flamingos. Uh, formerly the Florence Red Wolves, and we nearly had a riot in the street when you guys decided to change the name. But it was—I uh, mean, it was—it was, it was marketing genius, and it was a new start. And we have two people with us this morning that are responsible for uh, making sure the Florence Flamingos are relevant in our community. They're playing at Carolina Bank Stadium, uh, which is a local business that has invested in the naming rights of the stadium. Uh, Mitchell Lester is the president. Alston—is um, it Alano? Altano. Altano. I'm sorry. I wrote it down. I can't read them on writing. Altano is the marketing director of the Florence Flamingos. They're with us this morning to kind of um, uh, kind of give a preliminary um, look-see into what this newest uh, season will be about. Mitchell, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Uh, welcome. Glad yeah, to have I appreciate you. it. Sorry um, to bore you with the Missouri State General Assembly and what women can wear or not. I think, I think they enjoyed your story. Well, about I, mean, the... I don't know if they did or not. They're stuck with the story. How about, <laughs> how about that? They're a captive audience this morning. But, um, but I mean, the Flamingos, formerly the Red Wolves, have become um, probably as longstanding a local sports franchise as we've ever had here. Yeah. And, and I congratulate the Bars for what they did. Uh, they Absolutely. felt it was time to move on and, and pass the baton to you guys. So, um. Definitely so, thankful for Kevin Barth and yeah. everything he's done for this community. I mean, he's still a about a ten percent owner, so I go to his office quite a bit still, just to, because he is so involved in the community and knows so many people. So I'm very thankful for everything he's done to kind of 
put us in a position to be successful. So, so what is the next phase? I mean, you guys have come, renamed the team. It's more of a, um, I mean, minor league baseball is all about marketing. And, and I mean, you know, uh, it, it's, I don't, I don't want to say this. This sounds lousy when I say it. It ain't all about the baseball. Absolutely. In minor league baseball. Absolutely. There's an entertainment component that, um, that, that a lot of teams around the country have taken advantage of. So talk to us a little bit about um, the concept of the Florence Flamingos. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said it's not all about the baseball because there's one thing we can't control, and that's the play on the field. What we can control is if all our fans come and have a good time. So last year we announced the five-game ticket plan. That did amazing. Uh, we had 13 out of 25 sellouts, so we are moving in the right direction. We want to continue to see that grow to where we're at 25 home games are completely sold out and not a ticket in play. But the all-you-can-eat ticket package was a huge hit. I mean, being able to go to a ballpark and being able to eat as much as you want while enjoying a game and seeing all the goofy stuff that uh, gets able to be played is probably one of the best things you could do. I mean, everybody loves food, right? I mean, if you can get it for free while you're out there, I mean... There's really nothing that beats it. Um, I think the next biggest phase was completing the rest of the facility um, and the complex, which the city has been working great on um, to completely finish that sports complex over by our facility. Last year, if you came to park, you had to go around a construction site to get to our stadium. There was very few parking spots up front that was for our VIP members, ticket package holders, um, sponsors, things like that. Um, now there's a grassy area over right next to our VIP lot that's going to allow about double the size that our VIP size lot is if you've been out to the ballpark. Um, so just having more accessible areas to get to the ballpark is probably was the biggest next phase that we needed to get done and i'm very thankful for tim wilson uh randy olsterman all all of the people at the city that have been working tirelessly on that um and we look forward to just having more events at the ballpark that's probably a a phase that we're going to go into whether it be concerts whether it be um craft beer beer festivals things like that that a lot of uh sports organizations kind of go into um just to make the ballpark more relevant. Austin Altano, I'll go to you. You're the marketing director. That means it's kind of your job to communicate to the community what, what some of the things that are going on. Um, you got to be excited with some of the um, some of the points that Mitchell made. Uh, elaborate if you don't mind. Yeah. So I mean, in my head, you know, we want to make sure that the Flamingos stay, you know, a fun brand. You know, we think we had a lot of fun last year, um, and I think there's a lot of potential for the fun with the, you know, we're the only team um you know in any major sport or any sport really that the primary color is pink so you know really trying to make sure that we have a fun brand with that you know we're a flamingo you know it's not your not usually the <laughs> it's funny that you brought up when we announced the team that uh, first people were like uh and then you go out i, to I the was ball- one of those that were like uh. <laughs> <laughs> now you go to the ballpark and you see pink everywhere yeah. i mean there's people wearing it and repping it, I mean, we're in all 50 states. We're in 10 different countries. And that happened two weeks after we announced the team name. So just doing that for Florence has been really exciting for us. And being able to uh, go just to 
different people and say, hey, we want to be uh, different. We want to be fun. We want to be engaging has always been something that we're trying to echo anywhere we go. And, and and one thing that I think you guys have to be considerate of, and I think you have been, we talked about college football and college baseball to the NFL. Family of five can go broke being a fan of the Gamecocks or Tigers or Braves or, or anybody else. Rev was talking about what season tickets are. I mean, you were a guest of Atlanta because we are a, an affiliate. Right. And you were talking about when you asked somebody, so what do four seats there cost? And it would have like, okay, I won't make that in a lifetime, you know, but that's corporate America. That's kind of what were they catered to. I mean, I'm in the Gamecock Club, and I know what it costs to be a, a pretty decent Gamecock fan. You guys are really trying to concentrate and focus on affordability. You, you, you want the average family to not go broke enjoying a game of fun and baseball. Yeah, and that's why the ticket package, including food, is so important. I mean, you hit it. My dad is a season ticket holder of the Panthers, so we're – at Bank of America quite a bit and I know how much he He's pays dropping for some those. change. I know what you're it's, saying. It's ridiculous. I, like I I couldn't imagine going to a family and being like hey, you you're going to spend this much to sit here for x amount of games. And it's like we our ticket is affordable. It's $6 or it's $16 per seat per ticket um for a five game plan. It's as low as what would that be? $80? Yeah. Like it, it's just, it's affordable. It's fun. It's engaging. And that's what we're going to echo anywhere and everywhere because as tickets are going up really across the board, I mean, anywhere you go, everything's getting more and more expensive. If we can echo affordability, we're going to be in a good place. Is there an epicenter of information? Is there a website or a, a Twitter account or a Facebook page that the average fan who may not know much about your efforts can know more, um, get in line to buy tickets, be a part of the experiment or experience. Yeah. Austin's actually the one that handles all those things. We have a Facebook page. We have a Instagram, we have Twitter, we have TikTok, all of those things, as well as if you, um, go to our website, which is florenceflamingos.com, you can see all of all of our information anywhere and everywhere, but social media is probably the most um, easy way to get information out across the board. Okay, got one nugget of criticism. You ready? And I think you guys have corrected this or I wouldn't bring it up. So, so I go to the uh, Papa John's Bowl and it's played at Legion Stadium in Birmingham. And I love my Gamecocks, but the sound system was atrocious. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was Legion Field in Birmingham, and it sounded just like Legion Field in Birmingham. <laughs> I mean, if you're selling a fan experiment, that the audio quality needs to be compatible with that experience you're selling. Have we addressed that the issue would sound? Yeah. So last year, our biggest problem was the way they laid the conduit. The conduit was under the concrete, which once the concrete settled and everything, it cracked. Um, so the city, Tim Wilson and his team went above and beyond and actually rewired the stadium now that it's up and running and we're completely, uh, but that was one of our biggest uh, criticisms sure. for this year. Something and, you wanted and, to be better at. Exactly. And um, to your point, I mean, you're not going to have a good time if you can't hear anything, right? So uh, it, we can have all of the goofy games on the field. We could have... All of the fun things that you want to have at the ballpark, but if you can't hear it, you're not going to engage with it. Like you're not going to know what's happening. So 
that was that was one of the biggest off-season um, things that we actually got done first. Uh, that was done in October, um, so about two months after the season ended, we, that we wanted to address that and make sure we were able to announce that. Okay, quickly. last question: There is baseball. Where do you get your players from? I mean, I know the answer to this, but where for for the consuming public, what where do you get your players? So they're all college kids. Um, and there's so always a Gamecock and a Tiger. We try. Normally are. We, we try, yes, mm-hmm. sir. We, we try to get local kids that people can rally along, uh, behind and people that they know um, because a lot of our fans are Gamecock uh, fans, a lot of Clemson Tiger fans. Um, but we also try to go to Francis Marion, mm-hmm. things like that, that people um, have ties to this specific um, area in Florence. and. We want to be the hometown team. We want to be the team that people know uh, in town. And the way we do that is get local players or players that people can engage with and be comfort comfortable with. And the season starts? Our season runs from uh, July 1st to August 4th. June 1st. June 1st. Uh, August 4th. It'll be here before uh, you know it. I mean, it, we're, we're in the middle of February. I'm excuse me, the middle of January, but summer will, um, summer will rear its head much, much more quicker than we, than we imagine. Information, one last time. How can people find out more? How can they get on the list? How can they pre-purchase um, season passes or some of these um, five-game plans you have? Yeah, so uh, social media is the best way to get everything. Uh, look up Florence Flamingos or go to our website at FlorenceFlamingos.com. Okay. Thanks to both of you and good luck. Absolutely. Thank we'll, you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Oh, you gonna take me home tonight. Oh, down beside that red firelight. Oh, you gonna let it all hang out. Fat bottom girls, you make the rocking world go round.
Okay, I'm ready to have the debate again. You ready, Freehold? Since you've, um, I mean, you've kind of claimed the space of being the resident expert on uh, musical sophistication. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I only like the sophisticated musicians. Freehold understands right. the musical right. sophistication. And I don't think he appreciates our uh, knowledge and ability and skill in the musicians well i'm sure the first time i opened my mouth freehold deducted about 40 iq points when i said ain't y'all the way i did um but having said all that but he doesn't know it i've got these northern aggressors pretty well figured out as well (laughs) so so um we have the the goods on one another so when we said yesterday that stang was um unreplicable (laughs) stang To see our feed, feed the end of the- no, I got some buddies who went to the wrestling match one time, yeah. and, and I didn't go because I'm sophisticated, and oh, yeah. they went. Yeah. They invited me, and I said, the wrestling match? Of course not. I'd never go to something like that. Uh, the opera? Yeah. You know, um, a chess match? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 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 a wrestling match? No. In Bennisville? No, of course not. I wouldn't be caught dead at one of those because I have this reputation. Uh, so um, when we get back the next morning, but these guys I worked with, so we get back the next morning, I said, um, what happened? He said, Stang got thrown out the ring. <laughs> Stang got thrown out. <laughs> he said, Stang got thrown out the ring. I said, well, I'll be damned. Um, so, so anyway, yesterday when we talked about Stang uh, being a replicable, let's, let's clean this up. You ready? Yesterday when we talked about Sting yeah. and Beato's podcast or Beato's um, YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and we talked about Sting being unreplicable. Uh, see, you can't say Stang and unreplicable at the same time. True. Um, Give me a comparison to Queen. Oh. T- tell me another rock and roll band that has the diversity, the range, the I'll, I'll show you something you've never heard, like Freddie Mercury and Sting. I mean, I, I can't come up with a band. I mean, I'm the biggest Springsteen fan there is, but the E Street Band is the, I mean, Bruce says it's the greatest house band ever. I mean, you can easily understand that. Give me some, give me a rock and roll band that has remotely come close to demonstrating the complex diversity of, I mean, it's Bohemian Rhapsody. It's We Will Rock. I mean, we are the champion. I mean, listen to the list. Um, this thing called Love. I mean, they, they yeah, go from, yeah, I mean, but seriously, guys, I mean, yeah, I mean you, you yeah. guys are music aficionados, so to speak. Tell me someone remotely close. I mean, if Sting is unreplicatable, what is Queen? Uh, Guns N' Roses? Uh, mm, I would say you guys won't agree with this, but Alice in Chains, a lot of people don't realize how complex, like they're phenomenal musicians and Lane Staley had one of the greatest voices ever. So those would be my two. Uh, it depends on how you look at Pink Floyd. I do think Queen is okay. better than Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd, well, that, that's a good, it, yeah. that's the band I came up yeah, with. But the, the X factor though is Freddie Mercury. I mean, you just, he has that voice that so, is so let me tell Not a quick, replicated. you ready for the Freddie Mercury story? Not that story. Um, <laughs> so, so Mercury has this, this range that, that blows people away. I mean, he's a trained center, a singer. I mean, he's not some guy that shows up. I mean, he's formerly, I mean, he's, he's dead now, but I mean, he was one of the great, great, great front men in the history of rock and roll. I mean, and, and I think Freehold just admitted that we're right about their, 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 their collective genius. I mean, they are one of the rare, rare rock and roll bands of all time. So, um, Rev and I just started the show and we've been doing it a year or so. And Rev's kind of going through like, is this guy full of it or not? I mean, is, is or the things oh, I'd he, already figured that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By that. But, but you wondered if I was intentionally misleading or not. Right. right. If, if I was saying things. And so, so one day we come in and we play a queen song and, and I said, Rev, he's got too many teeth in his head. 
and that's how he can, you know, that's how he has his range, this this octave that he can hit that nobody else I can. Said, and Red said, what? <laughs> and so, so during my dissertation, my brilliant dissertation about American politics, I get on the Red's Google checking machine. behind me. Oh, yeah. I get on Googles. Google. So, so during the break, and this would have been year one in our in our relationship. So so Rev comes home during the break and he says, You weren't lying. I mean he's got too many teeth. Yeah, I mean, he was born in his head. He was born with too many teeth in his head. And therefore his mouth got bigger uh, to, to make room for those teeth that he's able to create some some sort of reverberating echo chamber. Um anyway, it's uh, yeah, much ado about nothing. But but I still believe that um that Queen is the most unique rock and roll act of my lifetime. I mean, I can't think of anybody. I can I can find bands that sound a little bit like the E Street Band. I can find bands that sound a little bit like the Beatles. I can find bands that sound a lot like the Stones. I can't come up with a band that has demonstrated the the vast diversity. I mean, when you think of this song, uh, you know, crazy thing. It's, it's like a tribute to Elvis. That's right. I mean, yeah. you know, it sounds like Elvis. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're paying their respects to the great Elvis Presley. And then the next thing you know, it's Bohemian Rhapsody. And you're like, where in the world another one did that dust. come from? Yeah, another one bites the dust. But in Bohemian Rhapsody, not only did they create a unique sound, they created the equipment they needed. I mean, they invented equipment to create the unique sound. A little bit like what Boston did with uh, More Than a Feeling. Well, and Brian May is some... Oh, like, he's a nuclear physicist. Right educated but he's a lead guitarist in a rock and roll band and, I, and that's why i played him today because we referred to stang yesterday as <laughs> unreplicatable and um unreplicable and um and i think queen is very similar in that regard i, I think i would go along with that i throw in honorable mention for led zeppelin just because of robert plant's ability to sing and jimmy page's guitar see freehold enjoys these conversations mm-hmm. i can tell he doesn't enjoy much but he enjoys these conversations <laughs> well I, I um i didn't say and i was thinking zeppelin but i didn't say zeppelin because i don't think that uh i just don't think plant mixed it up as well as he should have um what? lane staley and yeah oh. well well as far as changing their tempo changing their singing style he pretty much always sang in that not falsetto but he sang in that high range um, when you listen to Lane Staley, I promise you, listen to Lane Staley. Listen to what he does with his voice. Um, and and I, as far as just changing up his style, that's why I didn't choose Zeppelin. But, but you would the agree. Music is, is definitely. But unique. you would agree with my critique of Queen. Yeah. Unbelievably unique. Yes. Okay. Good deal. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Good morning. All right. We are the champions. You're my best friend, Ken. Uh, I was listening on home, Missouri. Don't they call that the show me state? They do. They do. And whatever you're talking about with that, but, but some female is apparently showing them too much in the, in <laughs> the general right. assembly, it's, but it's, it's the show me state. Uh, you talking about Tampa and the Cowboys last night. You said about the Redskins. I'll throw a name down at you. Clint Longley. I know you remember that. I do. Back in 74, that Thanksgiving game, the Dallas Cowboy quarterback. Dallas Cowboys. And here's a good trivia question. Who was the first starting quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Oh. I'll answer it for you. Our man, Steve Spurrier. I thought it was. You didn't give me a chance, David. Well, you know, we... we I was going to say man. Steve we're Spurrier time, or DeBerg. constraints here. I got to get to my point. Okay. Uh, but those two th- events that we're talking about, guess who was in the Senate? Joe Biden. Uh that was 49 years ago was uh, the Clint Longley, but 
you know, when I say that this, this is a genius of Biden in a way, Wilmington, Delaware, what do you think of, what do you guys think of when I say that? I think of DuPont. I think of DuPont too. And that, that was a big thing here uh, in South Carolina at one time. But I, I, I'm going to tell you this. They're 30 miles from Philly. They're 125 miles from New York City, about 100 miles from D.C., about 70 miles from Baltimore. Uh, they, they right next to the Jersey line. You talk about where all these people can get together in that one little hub and do things. Uh, so when, when old Joe talks about, man, I had to ride the Amtrak, it's only 100 miles. By the time you get in your car, by the time you get on a plane, you, you get on the old Amtrak, especially when your son's on the board. Uh, it's not that bad of a deal, but he's 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 done a good job. He's set up this crime syndicate in a way, the place that nobody knows about. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I began this morning comparing uh, Joe Biden to Bernie Madoff. And I think as the year progresses, I mean, the information won't come out at warp speed. I mean, there'll be resistance and there'll be uh, kind of a, a changing of the narrative. I mean, it, it'll be filtered. In other words, it'll it, the truth will be one thing. The media will distort the truth. They, they'll create a uh, an intentional narrative. But at the end of the day, if Jim Jordan has his way, if some of these oversight and investigative committees are allowed to do the work that I think they're going to be um, allowed to do, and Jordan is the tenacious bulldog that we think he is. Now, Jordan wears a jacket in the chamber. He doesn't wear a jacket in some of these subcommittees. There, there's kind of two rules of decorum. Uh, when Jordan goes as a member of Congress to debate a bill or do his job in the chamber, I, I would imagine he has a jacket on when he's voting for McCarthy as Speaker. But chairing these committees, um, he gets a little more um, leeway with, with the um, with the uh, the wardrobe uh, excuse me, the the dress code. and um, But but I think, once again, that, you know, and I thought about Joe Paterno. I really thought about, you know, Joe Biden, Joe Paterno. But but I think Bernie Madoff is the better is the better example. You know, I saw a tweet yesterday. I'd love to take credit for this, and I've said it before, but Peter Schiff said it better than I. He's talking about raising the debt ceiling. And he says, you know, when we raise the debt ceiling, we're basically – borrowing money to pay back money we've already borrowed and that by definition is a ponzi scheme so to some degree to some degree everybody in washington is involved in a ponzi scheme similar to what bernie madoff did and when you really break it down let's say madoff was a 50 billion dollar ponzi scheme what is 435 divided by 32 trillion because all four i mean i've never voted on a federal budget have you I mean, I've got an opinion. You've got an opinion. Lobbyist consultant have opinion. They lobby to make deals with the government. But at the end of the day, the only way we appropriate money is an elected official agrees to appropriate money. So um, they're all, they're all involved in some way, shape, or form with a an exorbitant Ponzi scheme. Take a break. Back in just a few. I don't have enough time to do this today, but I really want to go over this legislation that San Francisco is proposing. I mean, that would be California. Um, newsflash and um what's happening in wyoming with the um the electric vehicle legislation and then in montana the um, excuse me in minnesota they're talking about um that there's some state sensitive legislation and i, I kind of want to go down um uh, it, it's really and truly what they're saying is in minnesota it goes back to what we talked about in tennessee 
I mean, Tennessee is debating a law as to if someone gets in an accident and kills um, the parent of a kid and they're, you know, driving under the influence, then they're responsible financially to care for that kid until what the age of 18. I don't know how that works out. I don't know if the, I mean, the devil will be in the details as it relates to that. Well, in Minnesota, they've come up with a freedom fund. Uh, and they're basically saying that if you, uh, if you allow your money to go toward, um, getting somebody on bond who probably normally shouldn't be out on bond, you're accepting responsibility of their eventual behavior. It's, pr- it's pretty, Ooh. it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. Now, now, once again, it's the Republicans in Minnesota. Take that for what it's worth. I mean, they are in a minority position, but I think it's so interesting. And, and we may try to build a show tomorrow around, you know, these, um, these state issues and the, the the legislative advances some of these general assemblies are trying to do in regards to, you know, what we wish were the case. Remember we said earlier, um, I had it on the computer and I don't have it now, but there's a state in America today I'm trying to adopt a flat state income tax, uh, not abolishing the tax, but rather cleaning up some of the inexactness, some of the write-offs, some of the loopholes. Hey, you owe 2%, 2.5%, whatever that number is. You make 100 grand, you owe $2,000 to the state. And it's not a seven and a half, you know, negotiated down to four and a half via some of the loopholes, exemptions, and write offs. Um, now, the accounting industry probably won't care much for that because that lessens the likelihood. You know, I read something the other day in the Wall Street Journal um, about the 87,000 new IRS agents. There aren't that many qualified people. I mean, they, they could only fill about 8,700, 10%. Um, because people need a certain education and preparedness and understanding about the complexities and, and sophistications of, of the law. And we're living in kind of a no work environment by that. I mean, 38% of Americans are choosing to not go to work. Um, let's say 8% are retired. Kind of a no work environment. Well, I mean, eight, 8% are retired. 1% are, you know, trust fund babies don't have to go to work. Won a lottery parent left them more money than they'll ever be what about the able rest? to spend. Yeah. That, there you go. The rest. And, um, and society in general, and I've said this, said it a little bit y'all, last week, I've always felt that the great divide will be those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God. Ultimately, when we get to the, the macro of all macros and I choose one team and you choose the other, it'll be, I believe in God. Therefore I'm on this side. You don't believe in God. Therefore you're on, you're on that side. But in the interim, <laughs> until we get to that proverbial last straw, in the interim, I think the great divide in America today is those of you in the line of convenience store buying lottery tickets who are one of the 38% unemployed and don't want to work, and then the 62% of us who are still part of the workforce employment, excuse me, the uh, employment workforce rate, and uh, we're participating in the workforce. We got places to go and things to do. I mean, we're, um, we're committed to a bottom line. We have expenses. <laughs> we have to meet those obligations. And the, the only way that we figured out to meet our obligations is to get to work and be paid for our, for our toils. Um, and the 38% who are just kind of wandering around, what's the big rush here? Where are you hurrying off to? Give me two more of those scratch-offs <laughs> and five more of those uh, power fives. You're even talking slower when you well, do I mean, that. Just think about it. I mean, it's bizarre to me when you go in a convenience store and you got to be somewhere because you're one of the 62%. There's 38% just kind of wandering around. <laughs> what am I going to eat for lunch Taking today? Their time. Depends on how much I win on this lottery ticket. <laughs> Enjoy your day.